2: Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis hit Donald Trump harder at CNN town halls, but other closing arguments to Iowa voters enough to close a massive polling gap 10 days before the first contest.
3: Today, President Biden opens his 2024 campaign with a speech from historic Valley Forge. His message to voters about protecting democracy ahead of the third anniversary of the Capitol attack.
2: And a second tranche of Jeffrey Epstein documents have been unsealed. Hear how one victim claims Bill Clinton tried to pressure a popular magazine to quote, not to run sex trafficking articles about his good friend. See you on This Morning Starts right now. Well, good Friday morning, to everybody. Adi Kourish is with me here in New York. Poppy is off today, and we are focused on politics with a very good reason. Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley sharpening their attacks on Donald Trump in Iowa. Just 10 days left to close that giant gap in polling before the caucuses. In back-to-back town halls, DeSantis and Haley both made the case to Iowa voters that Trump becoming the presidential nominee would spell defeat for Republicans
4: in November. The Democrats want Trump to be the candidate. They are going to talk about all the legal stuff. January 6th, that will be what the election
5: will be about. Chaos follows him. And we can't have a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive it. And you don't defeat Democrat chaos with Republican chaos. Now, today, Trump is set to
3: return to the campaign trail with two rallies in Iowa after a holiday break. CNN's Jeff Zelani is in Des Moines with the highlights from last night's dueling town halls. And Jeff, of course, time is of the essence here for both Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. Um, can they change the dynamics of this race?
6: Good morning, Adi. Uh You can just feel that time is running short here uh, now before the voting begins in this 2024 presidential campaign for Republicans. Uh, but one thing was very different last night. For all the millions of dollars spent in negative ads on television, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis both were actually being pretty nice to one another. They appeared separately at CNN town halls, making their own case. And of course, that case about electability.
5: It is time to move past President Trump, and it is time to start focusing on how to strengthen America.
4: You don't want it to be a referendum on Trump and the past. You want it to be a referendum on Biden's failures. Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis
6: sharpening their arguments against Donald Trump and one another, 10 days until Iowa voters rendered the first judgments of the Republican presidential race. In back-to-back CNN town halls last night, DeSantis raising questions about Trump's electability, and the uncertainty surrounding the mounting legal challenges against the former
4: president. Whatever may be beneficial in the primary doesn't mean it's beneficial in the general election. And I think a 2024 election where the Democrats get to run against a candidate that is going through all this stuff, that is going to give the Democrats an advantage.
6: Haley arguing she's the most electable Republican candidate of all.
5: Americans don't want another nail biter of an election. And that's what we'll get. Look at any of the polls,
6: even as she sought to put to rest a controversy that's been following her over failing to say that slavery sparked the Civil War.
5: I had black friends growing up. It is a very talked about thing. We have a big history in South Carolina when it comes to you know, slavery, when it comes to all the things that happened with the Civil War, all that. I was over. I was thinking past slavery and talking about the lesson that we would learn going forward. I shouldn't have done that. I should have said slavery.
6: In the aftermath of a deadly shooting Thursday at an Iowa high school, just 30 miles away from the site of the town hall, DeSantis and Haley both said new gun laws weren't the answer.
5: Instead of living in fear, let's do something about it. We have got to deal with the cancer that is mental health. We have to.
6: DeSantis said he supports a Florida proposal to eliminate a three-day waiting period to buy a firearm, a law passed following the 2018 shooting at Parkland High School that killed 17 people.
4: You shouldn't have to be on a, a mandatory waiting period. Instant checks will do the job.
6: From immigration, to the economy, to foreign policy, the Republican rivals presented their own views, rarely criticizing one another to the degree they have on the campaign trail.
4: Biden's weakness invited a lot of the problems that we're seeing around the world. When I'm president, it's going to be totally different. You know, we're going to lay down very clear markers uh, and people are going to know, don't mess with the USA.
6: Haley drew gentle boos from the audience at Grandview University in Des Moines.
5: Oh, my gosh.
6: Over a statement she made earlier this week in New Hampshire.
5: You know, Iowa starts it. You know that you correct it. You know that you continue to go...
6: With a smile, she downplayed that comment.
5: New Hampshire makes fun of Iowa. Iowa makes fun of South Carolina. It's what we do. So, I mean, I think the problem in politics now is it's just, like, too serious and too dramatic.
6: Haley and DeSantis are locked in an increasingly bitter fight to emerge as the leading alternative to Trump. Their collision course has left Trump in a frontrunner's lane of his own as he heads back to Iowa today. He's eyeing more than a victory in the caucuses. He's looking for a decisive one. Trump's advisors tell CNN complacency among his supporters poses a bigger challenge than any of his rivals. We got to be sure that we put this thing away. The poll numbers are scary because we're leading by so much. The key
2: is you have to get out and vote.
6: And that is one of really the central questions hanging over this race in the final days here. Yes, there have been a lot of polls. But there have been no votes yet. Of course, that will come on January 15th at 7 p.m., when Iowans gather in their precinct locations across the state. That's why the campaigns right now are focusing on organization, trying to get their supporters organized and remind them that they do indeed have to vote on that evening. But today, the candidates are back on the campaign trail. This morning, Nikki Haley has an event here in just a couple hours, Ron DeSantis as well, and Donald Trump coming back to the state. He's not been here until just before Christmas, but his campaign certainly has been. But guys, that is one thing that's very interesting. His campaign is warning against complacency, trying to tell his supporters, yeah, you actually have to show up here to prove those polls correct. It Audience can, Bill.
2: No question. Ground operations always matter, particularly in a caucus state. Jeff Zellany, thank you. Right.
3: Now, joining us to discuss more, CNN senior political analyst John Avalon former Republican strategist, Lee Carter, and CNN political commentator, Errol Lewis. Welcome to all of you. Good morning. Um, so just in terms of tone last night with both of them, did you see feisty candidates? Did you see people just making the obligatory messages? Lee, can I ask you first?
7: Well, I thought they saw a different side of both candidates. I think uh, we saw a more uh, folksy version of Rhonda Sanders. He used some different language. He brought a jersey. He was just sort of a very different candidate. And we were talking earlier, he put some pretty bold plans out there that maybe he hadn't before. I think it's, it's, it's something worth discussing. I think he was a very different candidate. Nikki Haley, I think she could not have done better. I haven't seen her perform better at any other time during this campaign. She is ready to fight, but I'm not sure it's going to be enough to have a big, big impact on the polls.
8: I thought Ron DeSantis did a, a, a great job. And uh, I, I thought if he had shown up this way a few months ago, he wouldn't be having some of the problems that he's having right now. It was a very, it was a very conservative message, uh, but he was selling it in a very sort of a measured, almost moderate tone. So he wasn't saying things like slitting throats or, you know, where woke goes to die or any of that kind of bloody imagery. Instead, he was just kind of quietly saying, I plan to abolish the IRS. You know, that kind of thing. (laughs) Uh, They're Very, very very conservative, for sure. Yeah, Uh, I I agree. Um, Nikki Haley did extremely well. And she made an argument that, you know, I think is really one of her stronger ones, which is to say that even in the polling, I can win a general election. And in the end, that's what this is really about.
2: So to, to the point that Zeleney was making at the end there. Um, this is kind of a universal opinion, what you guys are saying from people I've spoken to. Not that my anecdotal focus group is some broad swath of, yeah. <laughs> of, of who's going to be voting a on caucus night in Iowa, assume. Um, yeah. you know, we're talking about time of the S is of the essence. The clock is ticking. Yes. There's only 10 days left. How do you do things? But it's a caucus state. And yeah. organizations matter. So is there time to make up what, in public polling, looks like a massive gap?
1: Yes, absolutely. Because it's a caucus state, because it's Iowa, because there are a lot of voters who are undecided. You know, Trump's got a hardcore base of supporters, but listen to that message. He hasn't been there since before Christmas, but it's important that his supporters show up. They're concerned about that conversion. Well, it's hard to ask people to show up when you haven't showed up. And I think one of the things we saw last night was DeSantis and Haley showing the benefits of that campaigning, not just in Iowa, but they've been debating. They're doing the town halls. They are at their prime. Do you lined up Donald Trump side by side to give that comparison, which he's been too cowardly, frankly, to do? um, I
3: think they would have blown him out of the water because he hasn't been showing up to these kind of things. And they tried to kind of underscore this. We did see more pointed critique. Um, I want to point out one from Ron DeSantis when he was asked to talk about the Republican election losses of the last couple of years. This is something Nikki Haley talked about for Mm -hmm. a while, but we heard it um, with DeSantis.
9: It sounds like you're saying Republican voters can't trust Donald Trump.
4: Well, what I'm saying is if you've run before, promised things, didn't deliver, and then you're running on the same things, uh, wouldn't it be reasonable to say, well, gee, I don't know that I can take that to the bank going forward. So yes, I think the fact that he's campaigning on something, uh, that does not mean that he would actually follow through on it.
1: There's a lot of argument the last several months. Campaigns are about contrasts. And last night, they drew the contrast real hard. Not just that line, which was strong, but Nikki Haley, taken to Donald Trump on two issues in particular. Not just electability, which is her strongest card. Whole show in Iowa, that's actually people's number one concern, theoretically. But also, whether Trump is too cozy with dictators. That he's added eight, added eight trillion to the debt. Those are strong, substantive arguments that draw a clear contrast, and it's not this tiptoeing around Trump we've yeah. seen far too much in this campaign. Go,
5: Go ahead.
3: ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say, DeSantis's problem earlier was, besides Trump going after him, that people were like, well, you're Trump-lite, so then why do I need to vote for exactly. you? So last night, did we see that guy, or did we see something different? I
7: think we saw that guy, but I think we saw him too late. It's it's very, very difficult to change your strategy this close to an election. We saw Ted Cruz try to do it. He changed three different times during the primaries in 2016. It's not effective. We want people who are authentic, who are who they are. And I think there's a lot of questions about who is this Ron DeSantis guy? Is he going to be the one that's fighting Mickey Mouse? Or is he going to be the one fighting for the American people and doing what he says he's going to do? I think Nikki Haley made a much better argument because she's consistent with what she's always been even if she had to you know, address some issues that she's had in the past.
2: She's also been consistent on being significant, significantly ahead of Joe Biden in a general election yes. matchup over and over and over again. And I think part of the reason for that is her ability to, at least on a messaging perspective,
3: sound a little bit more... Uh, Appealing to swing voters, maybe.
10: <laughs> that, that is, a,
3: that own, is a good I look. should be doing the analysis. You jump in here because we, she's always been polished. But what are we looking at? Exactly
8: right. Look, if, if there are areas where uh, Trump and Republicans in general have been struggling, right, with uh, suburban women, with college-educated voters. She is both of those things. And she comes across that way. And she is ready. You know, she certainly has the credentials, and she does it in a, with a light touch. She talks about her foreign policy experience and her executive experience as a governor. Uh, she's, she's checked all of the boxes. She's done all of the right things. She's, she you know, she uh, is, is painting a picture of a new Republican party, which is something that doesn't get talked about enough. And that's one thing that Ron DeSantis Total can't contrast.
1: come anywhere near. Total contrast. And just you know, quickly, I think we also lose sight of how extraordinary and historic it is to have a woman at the, this tier of a Republican primary. I mean, you know, and just letting that clear contrast, saying, look, she grew up, you know, as an Indian immigrant family in a small southern town and making a case where her you know, mother was saying, you know, I want to look at focus what unites, it's not what divides us. That's a kind of general election message It's pretty revolutionary for this Republican Party in this era. Total
2: contrast. You know, something she got into last night when yes. she was asked about it. We'll play that sound later in the show because we have a lot more to get to. Guys, yeah, stick with us.
3: Wonderful. Oh. So um, next Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern, Jake Tapper and Dana Bash moderate CNN's Republican presidential Debate, and that's going to be live from Iowa.
2: Also, this morning, new details on a deadly school shooting in Iowa where a sixth grader was killed. What the gunman reportedly posted on TikTok right before the shooting.
3: And a new trove of Epstein documents just released. What they say about a process Epstein allegedly used to find and recruit girls.
11: More CNN this morning to come after the break.
0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details.
1: Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation.
2: We are just now learning new information about yesterday's deadly shooting at a high school in Perry, Iowa, where a sixth grader was killed and several others were wounded, including the principal. Several news outlets, including the AP, report the shooter posted a TikTok video from inside the school bathroom, posing with a blue duffel bag captioned, Now we wait. The 17 year old shooter was found dead at the school with a self inflicted gunshot wound. One survivor telling CNN about the terrifying experience.
12: We heard four gunshots. Uh, down the hall from us. Our band teacher looked at us and he just goes, run. And like, none of us hesitated. We just all got up and ran.
2: CNN's Veronica Miracle is live for us in Perry, Iowa. Veronica, what more are we learning about this post?
13: Well, this TikTok video and other social media posts posted around the time of the shooting, all part of the investigation, according to the AP and according to authorities who spoke at a press conference yesterday. Uh, this is all part of their investigation as they try to figure out what this motive, what what the motive was, why exactly this horrible atrocity happened. The community this morning uh, truly mourning the loss of a sixth grader. Five other people were also injured in this attack. Four uh, individuals who were students were injured and one staff member, the principal of the high school, one of those injured are critically wounded but all of them are expected to survive. Now this was the first day Back from winter break and school had not even started yet. It happened just after 7:30 in the morning, and students from all grades were gathered for a breakfast club when the first shots rang out. Uh, within seven minutes, the first arriving officer arrived here on scene and found people running from the school. Obviously, people terrified. Also, people were uh, sheltering in place that they had to assist and protect. Um, this community—it's very small. The entire school district only has about 1,800 students. Everyone knows everyone. So when CNN was at a vigil last night, we ran into people who know the victim, who knew the victim, and had some heartbreaking things to say. Take a listen.
14: A friend, a friend of ours,
15: basically my like Roy. my second my kids, his friends, Association and Association, had heard that he was missing and he, miss and he lives in our neighborhood. Wisconsin. So I went to ask and heard from the family
14: themselves. In the state of Iowa. And he really is just they the sweetest boy, the, the one you state want your kids to be friends with.
13: Uh, police say the gunman died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Uh, he was a 17-year-old student here at Perry High School. Back to you, Phil.
2: Veronica Merkel. please keep us updated this morning with the investigation. Thank you.
3: New
13: details this morning.
3: Hundreds of new pages have been unsealed in a lawsuit connected to convicted pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. The victim alleges that, the former, that former President Clinton pressured Vanity Fair not to run a story on Epstein. The pages also shed new light on how Epstein's victims were recruited and what happened to them. CNN's Gene Cesaris joins us now. And, Gene, we're talking about 900 pages here, so there's a lot to go through. Um, What new details have come out?
16: Well, they came out last night combing through them. And, you know, this all stems from a 2015 civil suit brought by Virginia Dufresne against uh, Galeen Maxwell. And Virginia Dufresne had wanted her story to come out. She wanted a book. And so she became very close with a reporter out of Britain. And this reporter was encouraging her to go to the Vanity Fair magazine to have them do an article on it. And here is what, in a newly undisclosed email from 2011, here is what Virginia Dufresne says. She says, considering that B. Clinton walked into VF, Vanity Fair, and threatened them not to write sex trafficking articles about his good friend, J.E., Jeffrey Epstein, so she didn't want to do it. Now, we last night contacted Grayton Carter. He was Vanity Fair's editor from 1992 through 2017. He said, categorically, this did not happen. Uh, we also went to Bill Clinton's representative. He refused to comment on this, but once again reiterated it's been nearly 20 years since Bill Clinton has ever spoken to or acknowledged Uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Now, further in all of these pages that were released, there was a lead investigator from a case in the mid 2000s. Um, His name was Joseph Carey, and a deposition of his was released. He was specifically asked about the method of the recruiting and the massages and the girls. And then he was finally asked the question, so how many would you say girls were recruited for Jeffrey Epstein? His response, I would say approximately 30 30, 33. And then he was asked, and at the end of that massage, if that victim brought other friends, she would get paid for the recruitment of those friends? Correct, he answered. And then the attorney asked him, so did you determine that massage was actually a code word for something else? And he said, when they went to perform a massage, it was for sexual gratification. And finally, there was one victim that was recruited between 15 and 17 for massages and unsealed documents. Now, she says, you know, massages, Okay, She said, I had no idea it was sexual gratification. And once I got there, I was looped in. And that's what it was all about.
3: All this very young people involved in this. Thank you so much, Jean, for this reporting. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, a big winter storm is headed to the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast this weekend. Our weather team is tracking. it. We'll tell you more next.
3: And a Trump attorney suggests some Supreme Court justices might, quote, step up for him in the Colorado ballot case.
11: I think it should be a slam dunk in the Supreme Court. I have faith in them.
2: Well, the historic snow drought across the Northeast, it could actually end this weekend with a roar or Maybe a whimper, depending on where you live. A storm brewing in the Gulf of Mexico is heading north and could bring ice to the Appalachian Mountains and flooding rains into the south.
3: CNN's Derek Van Dam is live at the Weather Center tracking what to expect. So, Derek, give us an idea of what's to come.
17: Yeah, summarizes it best with a roar or a whimper. That's really it. But any way you slice it, this will be an impactful storm for the entire eastern seaboard. But in terms of uh, snowfall, in terms of what everybody wants to know, uh, this will be a southern interior New England snow thump with potentially six to 12 inches. You'll notice that Boston is the only major East Coast city within this winter storm watch, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, uh, all the way to Baltimore and the DC area, not included. So this is the storm responsible. It's just about to pick up some moisture from the Gulf of Mexico. Let's time it out for you. If you're located in DC, uh, we'll start to see that rain snow mix, mid morning on Saturday, and then the precipitation moves into Philly and New York City. We think right along the coastline east of I-95, this will be a mainly rain event, maybe a wet snow for New York City, up to an inch possible ending that snow drought, uh, but it will then transition to mainly rain overnight and maybe a few flurries behind it. An all snow event for Boston, certainly for the interior towards Worcester, and then it's all said and done by Sunday evening into Monday morning. This is very telling from the Weather Prediction Center. They have a marginal risk of a excessive rain. Notice this extends all the way to Providence, New York and Philadelphia. They're picking up on that uh, signal or that hint that this could be a major rainmaker, at least for the coastline. So here is that I-95 corridor, that sharp cutoff point. It's a matter of miles. New York City, yes, we could end the snow drought, but not likely. You can see the rain anticipated across Long Island, New Jersey, all the way to the Delmarva Peninsula. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news and crash anybody's hopes, but yeah, this is looking more like a rain event along the immediate coastline with snow the further west you travel inland that's the update all Bill, right body.
3: derek thanks so much
17: okay
2: well this morning there are growing
17: concerns the war in gaza could expand
2: secretary of state Antony blinken arrives in turkey today left last night it is the first stop on his eight nation visit to the middle east trying to prevent a wider conflict now this trip comes just after isis claimed responsibility for a pair of explosions in iran that killed 84 people
3: and injured hundreds on wednesday Tensions rising on the Korean Peninsula this morning. After North Korea fired more than 200 artillery rounds in a maritime buffer zone with South Korea, that has been a major flashpoint. The rounds were fired near two small islands where more than 7,000 people live. South Korea says no civilians or military were harmed, but calls it a, quote, provocative act that threatens peace. In response, South Korea's military held its own maritime shooting exercise. Residents were ordered to evacuate during that time. Also today, President Biden takes his campaign to a Revolutionary War landmark, how he plans to use January 6th to frame this election as a referendum on democracy.
2: And a mother held hostage by Hamas for 50 days opens up about the moment she was kidnapped. She describes the moment she was finally freed with her two daughters in our next hour.
18: Well, here is the God's truth about January 6, 2020. 21 close your eyes go back to that day what do you see rioters rampaging waving for the first time inside this capital confederate flag that symbolized the cause to destroy america and so at this moment we must decide what kind of nation are we going to be
3: Today, President Biden will pose that same question to America nearly three years to the day after the Capitol insurrection. He's holding his first campaign event of the new year near Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, a critical staging area for George Washington's troops during the Revolutionary War. Biden will lay out one of the core tenets of his campaign, protecting democracy from a potential second Trump term.
2: Well, today, some Americans believe January 6th might have been an inside job. In a new Washington Post-University of Maryland poll, a quarter of respondents say it's definitely or probably true the FBI organized and encouraged the attack. It is not. That is a lie. Back with us to discuss John Avalon, Lee Carter, and Errol Lewis. And Lee, I want to start there because I constantly think through when Biden was talking about democracy in the lead-up to the Mm -hmm. midterms. He had two major speeches, one in Philadelphia and then one in Washington a couple Mm -hmm. days before, and Democrats were pissed. (laughs) They're like, nobody wants to talk about this. This isn't the issue. And then you looked at the crosstabs after the midterms, and it mattered in the exit. Like, it mattered in the exits. Is it, does it matter now, given those types of
7: numbers? It does matter, and it matters now more to more people than it did before. The problem, I think, that Joe Biden has is it matters to Republicans in a different way than it matters to Democrats. When you look at it, just some numbers: seventy-two percent of Democrats say democracy is at stake if Trump wins. Fifty-five of Repu- fifty-five percent Republicans say democracy is at stake if Biden wins. So when you're making the democracy argument, it actually could help the other side. Now, I'm not sure um, when Joe Biden is talking about this, it could galvanize his base, but it can really upset other people, people on the other side, because Republicans look at the threat to democracy that he poses as people saying, you must agree with me. My freedom of speech is not, uh, is not being allowed. You're going to judge me and all of that. And they, they feel very, very threatened. It, it, this it's moment. important
1: to note those two things are not equivalent. Right. Right. I mean, you know, the, the concern about democracy being expressed by President Biden, which you're exactly right, was dismissed by a lot of pundits who said, no, he should be focusing on kitchen table issues. There's going to be a red wave coming. Biden made the democracy argument last time and it resonated. Um, and Republicans are concerned. And you can we can have a great debate about a liberalism on both sides in the feedback loop and all so that sort of stuff. But the fact that 25 percent of folks think that that January 6th was an inside job, that's a function of disinformation. It's been propagated by Donald Trump directly. And I think the democracy argument is important, particularly with the, iconi- the iconography of Valley Forge, because we go through these Valley Forge moments every once in a while in our history. And this is one of them, where we do need to defend democracy. And it's not just Biden saying it. It's former Trump staffers warning that Donald Trump represents a threat think, to democracy. I
7: think one of the biggest problems I have with all of this, though, is that in having these kinds of debates, it makes it more divided rather than more united. And I know it's... I know it's... it's it's important that you're right. I
1: understand I, okay, that. OK, but, but I mean, but, I'm, I'm I'm all for uniting, not dividing. But it means drawing the clear contrast and not saying the problem. It's divisive to bring up dangers to democracy. Because if there's a danger to democracy propagated by one candidate, it's important to call that out rather than running away from that right. fact in the, in the in the spirit of uniting the country. You need to call it what it is.
10: Eric, How can, gonna, I, let, can I bring you into this a little <laughs> yeah. bit? As a yeah. matter
8: of for, for a presidential campaign launch. It's going to do a a number of things for the president. First of all, it's what he believes. Secondly, it does help to unite the country because we are united around the Constitution. And he's going to sort of talk about the rule of law and the Constitution and what defending it means. And that's what Valley Forge was about. That's what his presidency has been about. Those are the messages we're going to hear today. Uh, It's also, though, I mean, while it might inflame some hardcore Trump supporters to hear that their guy was part of an insurrection, Uh, there are also a lot of independents out there. And Mm. and Joe Biden is going to be talking to them today as well because the polls have always shown that they broke towards Biden when it came to questions of what was January 6th about. Uh, And and, and by the way, you know, another thing he gets to do and will do today, I think, is indirectly remind us that this is a guy who's facing criminal charges. He's going to run against a person who's facing criminal charges in multiple jurisdictions. Um, That too is something that independents have indicated to pollsters does not make them like Donald Trump very much.
2: Uh, I don't, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I think I know where you're going. I, the actual numbers, like what are you seeing in terms of um, is it because low propensity midterm voters might vote in a presidential election and they didn't turn out then, but they will now and they don't like this issue? What are you looking at right now? Well, look, 14, the thread you're talking
7: about. So 14% of Republicans blame Donald Trump for January 6th. By going after Donald Trump, you're actually going to galvanize these folks to say more energetically, I'm going to defend him. The other issue is, well, this is really popular. 86% of Democrats say it's Donald Trump's fault. You need to go after him. It's about just about half of independence. And so you're going to split the issue. And he needs, this is a game of math, an addition. He really needs to be adding to his base, not anything else. When you, when you look at some of these numbers, this is the kind of argument that can alienate people. It can make people dig their heels in and say, I'm not sure I agree with you um and so i'm i'm just i'm concerned that in this moment the way that he's going after this is going to force people to say i'm wrong it's going to force people to say that i've aligned myself with evil and that's something that from a from a psychological perspective is really hard to We don't to
3: know do. if he'll use that kind of language yet.
7: We don't know if he'll use okay,
3: that. Okay, just, of just, to, yeah, I mean, we're, we're waiting for, for this. Yeah, no, that's yeah.
7: that's completely
2: fair. Can I, can I get to one thing? Because I actually do think this all threads together. Um, there was a Trump attorney who was on Fox who was talking mm-hmm. about the cases that he's currently facing, particularly those that have uh, taken him off the ballot in Colorado and Maine. Take a listen.
11: I think it should be a slam dunk in the Supreme Court. I have faith in them. You know, people like um, Kavanaugh, who the president fought for, who the president went through, held to get into place. He'll step up. Those people will step up, not because they're pro-Trump, but because, because they're pro-law, because they're pro-fairness. And the law on this is very clear.
2: The reason why I say it, it threads together is because people have different interpretations of very clear things that are happening, and oftentimes those interpretations are actually what the other side is doing. Mm -hmm. As in, if a Democrat said that about the Justice Department or Merrick Garland or fill in the blank here, there would be an absolute implosion. Correct. That's bonkers.
1: Yes. And the fact she's saying the quiet part out loud. She's his lawyer. Yeah, she's his lawyer, which says a little bit about the quality of his, his legal counsel. But that she's saying that Brett Kavanaugh will step up and side with the president because he appointed him. I mean, that goes against every basic idea of, 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 of law and independence of, of, of the judiciary. And it frankly puts Kavanaugh in a bit of a box. Yeah. Yep. Um, but, but, you know, look, I mean, it, the good people can disagree about the political implications and everything, but the Constitution says what the Constitution says. And, and the idea it's a slam dunk and you're going to be re- rescued by partisan politics exposes the rot and the degradation. Well, I and of course, I
8: mean, the, the whole idea, of course, of, of life tenure on the Supreme Court is precisely to prevent this. And Brett Kavanaugh... Or, or anybody else on the Supreme Court, is not going to be taking instructions from the Trump legal team about how they're supposed to rule on this very, very important case. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we have enough faith in the institution, we shouldn't be overly uh, w- worried about this. Well, I guess um, that's kind of the problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that is a huge right.
7: part of the problem. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, look, only 6% of Americans trust that the federal government works as it's supposed to work. And this is one of the reasons why. You see people like this out there saying that you can make a call to... Brett, or just nod to Brett Kavanaugh is going to do the right thing. That is, that is at, at best, that is concerning.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> at best. At absolute best. Leah Earl, John, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Well, today could be the day the Supreme Court, we were just talking about them, the justices could decide on taking up that case on Donald Trump's ballot eligibility.
3: What we're learning about that ahead. And we'll have more about the documents unsealed from the Jeffrey Epstein case. The reporter who investigated Epstein and worked at Vanity Fair joins us in our next hour. This morning, the Supreme Court could make its first move on the case to remove Donald Trump from the Colorado primary ballot. Justices are expected to meet today to discuss pending cases, Trump asked them earlier this week to overturn Colorado State Supreme Court ruling. And in a new filing last night, a group of Republican and independent voters in Colorado stressed, quote, the urgency and importance of this case.
2: Now, today is the certification deadline for candidates to appear on the ballot in Colorado. The Secretary of State has said Trump will be on the ballot unless the court rules differently. The meeting comes as groups in Illinois and Massachusetts filed motions yesterday to remove Trump from their state ballots, both citing the 14th Amendment That was used to remove Trump in Colorado and in Maine. Joining us now, CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic. Joan, not that any of us can break into the room, but if anybody could, it would be you. (laughs) What what do we expect out of this today?
19: Okay. Good morning to both of you. Uh, This is the first time the nine of them are back in their private conference today. Uh, It's in a a closed room with only the nine. uh, No. aides or uh, clerks uh, with them in this room off of the chambers of the chief justice. And they will be looking at the pending cases uh, that have issues from the Trump cases to plenty of other uh, subjects that are now before them. But they now, as of last night, have all the material so that they can consider these cases from Colorado. And what they're going to have to look at is a very complicated set of questions. And we might know, Phil and Audie, at the end of the day, if they're going to take these up, or they might let them sit for a little while and consider which questions they actually want to address. Because this is a very weighty matter with several questions pending before them.
3: So what are those core questions and who sure. will sort of, he face in this dispute?
19: Okay, so... Um, Everyone knows that uh, at the center of this is a post-Civil War amendment to the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, and a section that said that uh, an official would be barred from holding future office if during the course of his or her tenure, it sworn to uphold the Constitution, but then engaged in an insurrection. And what these voters in Colorado have successfully uh, argued in Colorado is that Donald Trump should be off the ballot because of what happened on January 6th. So the core question, Audie, is, you know, did he, first of all, does this... Um, provision apply to the to a president. Uh, A lower trial court judge had said, no, it wouldn't apply to a president. But uh, the Colorado Supreme Court reversed that and said it does. So you have questions such as Um, Was January 6th an insurrection? Did Donald Trump incite that insurrection? Can states enforce this insurrection provision? I should remind everyone, but this has not been tested. And there are so many other questions that the justices will be deciding what should they address and when shall they address it?
2: Joan, do we have any say? I constantly am told the Supreme Court can act when it wants to act (laughs) act as fast as it wants or as slow as it wants. Is there a time pressure here?
19: Yes, there's time pressure, Phil. And this is this is why I think there is a chance we could see a signal today or early next week, because the parties have, that have come in have said uh, the Colorado voters want a decision as early as February 11th, because on February 12th, that's when Colorado mails out its ballots that need to be returned by March 5th, Super Tuesday. So, you know, they feel like the pressure should um should cause a decision to come as early as February 11th. The Colorado Republican Party that has joined with Donald Trump to challenge the ruling by the Colorado Supreme Court says, as long as you rule by March 5th, things will be okay. March 5th, of course, is Super Tuesday. Colorado and about 15 other states will be holding their primaries that day. So that's the time pressure on this court that normally moves Phil and Audie very slowly. Well, Jonah, we'll be following your reporting.
3: Thanks so much.
2: Thank you. Well, coming up, more from our Iowa Town Hall with Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, the two candidates sharpening their attacks on Donald Trump.
3: And new this morning, Oscar Pistorius, the the double amputee Olympian, turned conviction killer is out of prison, why he was freed after killing his girlfriend, and her family now will respond.
11: More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
8: I wake up every morning, you're the first people I think of, the first people I pray for. I can't imagine the, the pain and the sorrow and the emptiness that I've caused you and your family.
3: That was former Olympic sprinter and convicted murderer Oscar Pistorius during his murder trial in South Africa almost a decade ago. This morning, he's out of prison. He was granted parole in November after spending nearly nine years behind bars for killing his girlfriend, Riva Steinkamp on Valentine's Day in 2013. The dramatic details in the murder trial grabbed the international spotlight. And during testimony, Pistorius claimed he thought he had shot an intruder. CNN's David McKenzie is joining us live from South Africa. And David, let's just begin with his parole conditions.
10: Good morning, audience. Phil. Yes, it is strict parole conditions. We've been waiting for several years for uh, the parole to come up. It was a roundabout way that eventually Oscar Pistorius, the former Paralympian and Olympian, who was world famous for his feats on the track, and then uh, disgraced because of his actions on early Valentine's morning in uh, 2013 and after a very closely watched trial, he was convicted uh, first of the equivalent of manslaughter, and then that was overturned to murder. The parole convictions, Audie, are pretty strict. He can't talk to the media. He's l- unlikely to be seen much in the public eye. He will be on parole uh, until 2029 at least. Uh, he will be staying in pretty luxurious circumstances in his uncle's mansion in Pretoria, uh, but won't be able to speak to the media. Aude, Aude, Phil? Has
2: there been a response from the family? There were such central players during that trial as the world watched, have they said anything?
10: They have, in fact, in a statement released uh, a couple of hours ago this morning, the mother of Oscar Pistorius, June Steenkamp, saying that, in fact, at this time, I'm not convinced that Oscar has been rehabilitated. If someone does not show remorse, they cannot be considered to be rehabilitated. She has said, uh, Phil, that she has forgiven Oscar, uh, but she does say that she doesn't believe his version of the events, that he said. Uh, that he shot the bathroom door in his apartment saying he believed it was an intruder in their uh, place where they were staying. Uh, but in fact, she thinks he knew that it was Riva Steenkamp. Either way, this has been a family tragedy, not just a case that has seen worldwide attention. I don't think we'll see or hear from Oscar Pistorius, though, even though he's been released anytime soon. Or do Phil? All right, David McKenzie live for us in South Africa. Thank you. And CNN This
2: Morning
4: continues right now. We need a change agent in Washington. Donald Trump had an opportunity to do that. He didn't do it. I will. And he was cold-blooded
5: going after Donald Trump. Where has this guy been? We need to have a new generational leader, one that's going to leave the negativity and the baggage behind and start focusing on the real issues. She shows that she looks presidential when she talks about serious policy.
16: President Biden to Valley Ford. Where he'll deliver a campaign speech
7: laying out his 2024 re-election arguments. Remind Americans of what happened on January 6th. His mission, it's to say, if you think it's chaotic now. What if we go back to
15: this guy? Tension across the Middle East, escalating. Iranian-backed groups targeting more ships near American troops. ISIS is now claiming
8: responsibility for a pair of deadly explosions in Iran. Time is running out to get a solution along the northern border.
12: Dangerous, unlawful behavior requires
2: collective action.
3: Well, good Friday morning, everyone. It's the top of the hour. I'm Phil Mattingly. And I'm Audie Cornish here in New York. Poppy Harlow is off today. Right now, the countdown to the Iowa caucuses is on.
2: And Donald Trump is getting ready to make his big return to the state with two rallies today as he seeks a dominant victory in just 10 days. His top rivals, Ron DeSantis and Mickey Haley, are escalating their attacks on the former president as they struggle to chip away at his massive lead. In back-to-back town halls in Des Moines, right here on CNN last night, DeSantis and Haley both made the case to Iowa voters that Republicans will lose in November if Trump is the nominee.
4: The Democrats want Trump to be the candidate. They are gonna talk about all
5: the legal stuff, January 6th. That will be what the election will be about. Chaos follows him and we can't have a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive it. And you don't defeat Democrat chaos with Republican chaos. CNN's Jeff Selenay is in Des Moines with the highlights
3: from last night's dueling town halls. And Jeff, as we said, the countdown is now. How are they going to change the dynamics of this race? Hey,
6: good morning, audience. Phil. Well, you could just hear those arguments there uh, really making uh, strong warnings to Republicans about the idea of reelecting or renominating Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis was talking about the failed agenda of the Trump administration. Nikki Haley was talking about the the chaos that a Trump presidency would bring. Uh, they were not really going after one another as they have been and as their attack ads have been. But they're clearly making an argument for a new generation of leaders in a party, though, that is still led by Donald Trump.
5: It is time to move past President Trump, and it is time to start focusing on how to strengthen America.
4: You don't want it to be a referendum on Trump and the past. You want it to be a referendum on Biden's failures. Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis sharpening their arguments against Donald Trump and one another,
6: 10 days until Iowa voters rendered the first judgments of the Republican presidential race. In back-to-back CNN town halls last night, DeSantis raising questions about Trump's electability and the uncertainty surrounding the mounting legal challenges against the former president.
4: Whatever may be beneficial in the primary doesn't mean it's beneficial in the general election. And I think a 2024 election, where the Democrats get to run against a candidate that is going through all this stuff, that is gonna give the Democrats an advantage.
6: Haley arguing she's the most electable Republican candidate of all.
5: Americans don't want another nail biter of an election. And that's what we'll get, look at any of the polls.
6: Even as she sought to put to rest a controversy that's been following her over failing to say that slavery sparked the Civil War.
5: I had black friends growing up. It is a very talked about thing. We have a big history in South Carolina when it comes to, you know, slavery, when it comes to all the things that happened with the Civil War, all that. I was over, I was thinking past slavery and talking about the lesson that we would learn going forward. I shouldn't have done that. I should have said slavery.
6: In the aftermath of a deadly shooting Thursday at an Iowa high school just 30 miles away from the site of the town hall, DeSantis and Haley both said new gun laws weren't the answer.
5: Instead of living in fear, let's do something about it. We have got to deal with the cancer that is mental health. We have to.
6: DeSantis said he supports a Florida proposal to eliminate a three-day waiting period to buy a firearm, a law passed following the 2018 shooting at Parkland High School that killed 17 people.
4: You shouldn't have to be on a, a mandatory waiting period. Instant checks will do the job.
6: From immigration, to the economy, to foreign policy, the Republican rivals presented their own views, rarely criticizing one another to the degree they have on the campaign trail.
4: Biden's weakness invited a lot of the problems that we're seeing around the world. When I'm president, it's going to be totally different. You know, we're going to lay down very clear markers uh, and people are going to know, don't mess with the USA.
6: Haley drew gentle boos from the audience at Grandview University in Des Moines.
5: Oh, my God.
6: Over a statement she made earlier this week in New Hampshire.
5: You know, Iowa starts it. You know that you correct it. You know that you continue to go.
6: With a smile, she downplayed that comment.
5: New Hampshire makes fun of Iowa. Iowa makes fun of South Carolina. It's what we do. So, I mean, I think the problem in politics now is it's just, like, too serious and too dramatic.
6: Haley and DeSantis are locked in an increasingly bitter fight to emerge as the leading alternative to Trump. Their collision course has left Trump in a frontrunner's lane of his own as he heads back to Iowa today. He's eyeing more than a victory in the caucuses. He's looking for a decisive one. Trump's advisors tell CNN complacency among his supporters poses a bigger challenge than any of his rivals. We got to be sure that we put this thing away. The poll numbers are scary because we're leading by so much. The key is you have to get out and vote. So for all the criticism of Donald Trump, one thing not mentioned was the January 6th insurrection, with the exception of one voter asking about patriotism. But Ron DeSantis did make an interesting point. He said, look, all of the legal challenges facing the former president may rally his base for the primary, but will be a negative in the general election campaign. Now, all of that is coming into clear view today as Donald Trump comes back to Iowa and President Biden on the campaign trail as well talking about that very thing. January 6th, of course, the anniversary of that is tomorrow. So, guys, with 10 days until the voting begins here, you get the sense that uh, time is running a bit short, but there are also many open minds. That's what Haley and DeSantis last night were trying to do, to try and close some of them. Guys. The sprint is on. Jeff Salani from Des Moines. Thank
2: you. And next Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern, Jake Tapper and Dana Bash moderate CNN's Republican presidential debate live from Iowa. you got to tune into that.
3: President Biden will travel to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania today to deliver a major campaign speech revolving around tomorrow's third anniversary of the Capitol insurrection. It comes as he prepares for a possible rematch in November with Trump. Biden's using the Revolutionary War landmark as a backdrop to send the message that the former president is a danger to democracy. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is at the White House. Uh, Good morning, and I want to start with this uh, moment for the Biden campaign as he tries to use this anniversary to, you know, kick off his his case for a second term.
20: Well, he's going to use this moment to set the stakes for the 2024 election. Protecting American democracy has been the centerpiece of the president's campaign, and he's going to illustrate that in his speech today by calling back to the January 6th insurrection and also the threat that former President Trump poses to democracy. And if you recall, back in 2020, the president also did this in his elect and his bid for the White House and calling for the battle of the soul of the nation. And in his re-election video just last year, when he announced that he would uh, run again in 2024, he started that video with images of January 6th. And what campaign officials say now is that the threat is so much more urgent, saying in a statement, quote, the president will make the case directly uh, that democracy and freedom, two powerful ideas that united the 13 colonies, and that generations throughout our nation's history have fought and died for remains central to the fight we're in today. Now, as you mentioned there, the location of this speech is also important. It's the historic uh, revolutionary war in Valley Forge. That's where George Washington commanded his troops. It's also where the president is going to highlight how Washington, after two terms of his presidency, relinquished power. And that he's drawing the contrast to the former president who wouldn't accept the 2020 results. And also he'll talk about political violence and the insurrection marking that third anniversary tomorrow. But what is important here is that the president makes, made the decision to jumpstart his campaign on this issue. It's one that his campaign sees as a p- potent one, and they're laying the groundwork as they refine their messaging against the former president.
3: Priscilla Alvarez, thanks so much.
2: And joining us now, a CNN contributor and staff writer at The New Yorker, Evan Osnos. Evan has also happened to write a biography of President Biden and knows kind of the ins and outs, particularly over the course of the last eight to 10 years that led him to this moment probably better than anyone. And that's where I want to start with you, because there's connective tissue, and Priscilla got at it, from the battle of the soul of the nation, for the soul of the nation, and its campaign launch in 2019, to Warm Springs, to Gettysburg, to Philadelphia. You've got to take it all the way through. Why?
21: Yeah, for for Joe Biden, this is something that is began long before January 6th. You know, he had images of the neo-Nazis marching in Charlottesville when he announced his candidacy back in 2019. And there again, you see it now tying into a through line that runs right up into this moment. Look, the choice uh, to make the first major speech of 2024 of the election year not about the economy, not about legislation, but about democracy is to send a very clear message. That is the central arena of the coming year of this campaign. And, and look, I think this is also partly a message to Democrats, who many of whom are worried about his approval ratings, who say we want to see a feistier, more vigorous response to what is pretty clear now, a Donald Trump candidacy steamrolling across the Republican field.
3: You know, Donald Trump will actually be in court, uh, I think, on January 9th. He's expected to be in D.C. court talking about being immune from prosecution on charges that he tried to overturn the 2020 election. So how big a role do you think these court cases um, could play in this race? Is that something that Biden you know, is going to address head on?
21: Well, look, Biden has been careful to say to, to keep some bright lines around what he is doing as a candidate when he talks about the threat to American democracy as a as a fundamental, a sacred issue, as one of his advisors put it the other day. But at the same time, not saying that he's getting involved in these legal issues. We know this is something Americans are concerned about. He's concerned about any perception that he would be interfering. And look, it is a juggling act. But I think what what is clear now is that after months of Democrats saying, what is this campaign going to hinge on? There is no question. This is about what they call in t- inside the campaign, inside the White House, the freedom agenda, the idea that there is a fundamental assault on American freedoms and that there is a candidate, a Republican likely nominee who is leading that charge.
2: Evan, at the same time that he's going to give these remarks, obviously tomorrow the, the marks the third uh, year since the January 6 attacks, his campaign launching a half million dollar ad buy in seven critical battleground states. Take a listen to some of it.
18: There's something dangerous happening in America. There's an extremist movement that does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy. All of us are being asked right now, what will we do to maintain our democracy? History's watching. The world is watching. Most important, our children and grandchildren will hold us responsible.
2: I I think what I come back to is um, you talk to Democrats who have a million ideas of what Biden and his team should be talking about right now. And oftentimes it is not democracy. It is not. It's about economic issues, pocketbook issues, what you're doing to stem inflation, all of these types of issues. And Biden always comes back here. And I wonder if there's if that's because he thinks they were wrong the first 15 times or if there's something else he's seeing.
21: You know there is an element here that the Biden campaign, Biden and his advisors believed in 2020, and then they believed again in 2022 in the midterm elections that it was not going to come down to questions of the economy. Yes, people are concerned about inflation, and they remain concerned even as it's come down. They believe that in the end, in the final analysis, Americans will see the prospect of a return of Donald Trump, a return to that America, the one that is pictured in that ads, a gallows in front of the Capitol, uh, that that. That is a uh, that in the end is the thing that will make people say, I do not want to go back to that. And it's a subtle acknowledgement that we know, yes, Americans have their dissatisfactions with Joe Biden. But what this ad and what this campaign is going to make the case is this is not just a referendum on Joe Biden. Their view is this is a choice between him and Donald J. Trump.
3: Uh, Evan Evan Osnos, thanks so much.
21: My
17: pleasure.
3: Now ISIS has claimed responsibility for Wednesday's deadly twin explosions in Iran. We'll discuss how that attack and others in recent weeks are feeding into fears of war across the Middle East. And former Defense Secretary Mark Esper joins us live next.
2: And we're getting new details this morning about the 17 year old boy who killed a sixth grader and wounded five other people at his high school in Perry, Iowa.
7: Thought she was like exaggerating i was like no way like that couldn't happen like you guys just heard
13: something and then
22: nope <laughs> that's what she heard
7: and that's it could have been her she heard three gunshots that could have been pointed at in her
11: direction <laughs> more cnn this morning to come after the break
2: Well, new this morning, global shipping giant Maersk says it will divert all of its vessels from the Red Sea for the, quote, foreseeable future due to significantly elevated security risks. Those ships will now sail around the tip of Africa. Iranian Houthi militants recently attacked several vessels in the Red Sea, including a Maersk ship on Saturday. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, meantime, is heading to the Middle East, aiming to ease rising tensions on several fronts in the region. Just in the past five days alone, the U.S. targeted a pro-Iranian militia commander in Baghdad. ISIS claimed responsibility for the deadliest attack in Iran since the 1979 revolution. Israel is suspected of carrying out a strike in Beirut that killed a senior Hamas leader. And as mentioned in the Red Sea, U.S. helicopters sank three Houthi boats after coming under fire. Tensions are rising. Regional players to this point have mostly stayed away from open warfare against Israel or its allies. But as one Middle East expert tells The Washington Post, quote, They're playing a very dangerous game. It's chicken, basically. Any miscalculation, any miscommunication, any accidental strike could trigger a major escalation. Joining us now to discuss is former Defense Secretary under President Trump, Mark Esper. Mr. Secretary, I appreciate your time. Those warnings have existed since the conflict began in the wake of the October 7th terror attacks, but it feels more acute and dangerous now than ever before. Is that fair?
23: Yeah, I think it is. It's uh, stepped up a notch, as you outlined over the past week or so. Some of the events related, some not related. For example, the, uh, the attack by ISIS in Iran. But nonetheless, it, it heightens the tension in the region and it makes the game a little bit more complicated and a little bit more dangerous.
2: We've been talking about the Red Sea a lot. There's a major economic impact. There's obviously a major regional impact to that. Uh, there are a lot of people outside of the Biden administration, and you're one of them, that have been urging them to do more, uh, to directly strike uh, the Houthis in Yemen. Why don't they?
23: Yeah, well, first of all, the importance of the uh, the Red Sea, you know, it's 12% of commercial trade to include a lot of energy. And so anything passing through that uh, through that uh, waterway is going to now see increased prices and delays. So it has an economic impact as well. Now look on your question. Uh, I don't know exactly why. I think one, uh, they are concerned about escalation, which I think is a false concern. But we've seen that same type of mindset in the, the Ukraine conflict. And then secondly, I think that they are concerned that somehow if we strike back uh, and take actions against the Houthis in Yemen, that it will, that it will upset the, um, the, the truce between the Saudis and the Yemenis, that the Biden administration sees as a foreign policy accomplishment. I don't see that connection. Uh, what I see is continuing attacks by the uh, Houthis regardless of what we say. So we've been three months now, uh, the Houthis have attacked, have launched over 100 missiles and cruise missiles we continue to warn and, and threaten. Just as recently as Wednesday, the White House sent out a stern warning to the Houthis. And on Thursday, the Houthis launched a remote controlled uh, boat armed with explosives uh, into the commercial shipping lane. So it's clearly not working. And at some point, as you, you quoted a Middle East expert, something's gonna happen. It's gonna really um, uh, escalate things. And my view is we should be attacking the ground targets, the launch pads in Yemen to go after the Houthis before something really big happens.
2: Given the amount of issues that this administration needs to work with Saudi on in this moment, needs their help, needs their assistance, needs them at the table, um, how much influence do you think they have and their concerns over getting back into a conflict after a lengthy ceasefire play a role in this? Well,
23: they probably don't want to get into a conflict with with, with the Houthis right now. But again, I don't see the relationship between the United States responding to attack against merchant vessels and, and arguably against U.S. Navy ships in uh, in, in, the waters south of Yemen is somehow impacting that truce. I mean, this Yemen, uh, the Houthis have said very clearly that they're going to continue to do what they're doing as long as Israel continues its assault into Gaza. So how long are we going to wait? How many attacks are we going to suffer or, is, or and how much shipping is going to be impacted before we respond? I think if you take out the launchers If you take out the launch pads, um, you'll have an impact. You can impose some cost on them. And maybe they'll think twice about uh, launching more uh, rockets, missiles, uh, cruise missiles at commercial ships.
2: We've had a lot of discussions over the course of the last several weeks when it comes to this topic, very critical topic about proportionality, uh, whether something is reciprocal, the back and forth. And my question has always been, how do you know what that line is? And what happens if somebody makes a mistake? You were inside the Pentagon. You were inside the building. You were in these discussions uh, in the situation with national security officials. Is there a chart? How do you know like it, where the red line is, where this, this won't cause a reaction? This won't cause uh, an escalation?
23: Well, there, there, there's no formula per se, but it's composed of a number of factors. Uh, you know, Your own capabilities, what the battle damage assessment may or may not be, the impact on regional players. Uh, what the odds are of escalation, what are the odds that you'll restore deterrence. I, I think there are a number of factors that play in, in here. But again, I think if you look around multiple conflicts, you see a hesitancy by the Biden administration to do things that might otherwise reduce escalation, whether it's here in this conflict, and, and not just with regard to the Houthis, but let's talk about Iraq, Syria, um, uh, Southern Lebanon, other places where, particularly Iraq and Syria, where American forces has been attacked over a hundred some times, And we've only responded six or seven. Uh, The same is true in in Ukraine with uh, us restraining the Ukrainians or not providing the weapons they need when they wanted it to go after Russia. So I I can't explain that mindset.
2: Yeah, I mean, I do think the the drone strike in Baghdad going after a very specific leader was a a level that we hadn't seen uh, this administration go before. I do want to ask you before I let you go, though, a new report from Democrats in the House Oversight Committee said Twenty foreign governments, including China and Saudi Arabia, paid $7.8 million to Trump business entities during his presidency. It's one of the things everybody was always trying to figure out during his presidency, the influence. And when people were staying at hotels or businesses, does that concern you, given the influence operations that countries like China run? Well,
23: first of all, back to the the other comments you made. I I do agree that I think the... uh, administration's attack on the uh, militia leader in Baghdad was significant. I think it was good. I, I was surprised that they did it within Baghdad. There are a number of factors there at play that we were always concerned about getting uh, U.S. forces kicked out of uh, out of Iraq. And there's uh, a few reasons why we, we need to be there, I think. But uh, look, on the second thing, I, I've seen those stories popped up. I haven't delved into them. I think you, you always want to be concerned about foreign influence. I know China was cited, for example, but uh, arguably uh, Trump took pretty tough actions against the Chinese when it came to laying tariffs and all that stuff. But look, these things should be explored, looked into. Transparency transparency is important uh, and and get to the facts. Uh, So that would be my take on it based on what little I've read so far.
2: Secretary Mark Esser, it's a very important point about Iraq and the stability of the government there, US forces and the coalition forces there that we should definitely talk about in the future. Appreciate your time, sir. As always, thank you. Thank you.
3: A new batch of documents connected to Jeffrey Epstein have just been released. What we're learning about alleged efforts by Bill Clinton to bury stories about the late sex offender.
2: And right now, a four alarm fire is ripping through a large industrial building in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Officials say the fire started just before 545 this morning. No word yet on what caused the fire or if there are any injuries. We're going to keep you posted throughout the morning. We'll be right back.
3: New information this morning about Thursday's deadly shooting at a high school in Perry, Iowa. A sixth grader was killed. Among the wounded, four other students and the school principal. Several news outlets, including the AP, reporting the shooter posted a TikTok video from inside the school bathroom, posed with a blue duffel bag, captioned, Now We Wait. Police say the 17-year-old shooter, Dylan Butler, died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. CNN's Veronica Miracle is live for us in Perry, Iowa. Veronica, I want to start first with what you're learning about the shooter's social media post.
13: Adi, this is a part of the investigation. Certainly, authorities are trying to figure out exactly what the motive is. Uh, They are looking at social media posts posted by the gunman before the shooting. We're also learning from the AP that that TikTok video is now part of this investigation. And also new this morning, two students revealing to ABC News that bullying may have played a factor in this shooting. They say that the 17-year-old gunman may have been bullied since he was in elementary school. Take a listen.
14: He got tired. He got tired of the bullying. He got tired of the harassment. He tried to be there when he needed us, us, which clearly we weren't there for him enough.
13: The shooting happened just before school on the first day back from winter break. Police say uh, it happened as students were gathered for a breakfast club before school began. And the first officer arrived within seven minutes of the first call and saw people running from campus. Uh, Students who were inside the building speak about the harrowing attack at a vigil. Take a listen.
16: At first, like the
22: whole like a cafeteria went silent, and then like more shots like continued, and everything just went into chaos. Hey folks, um, and I'm Joel Kurtinitis. I just saw Anybody like the principal start running, the
10: and like all my friends,
22: and I just um, got out of there.
15: For- when I was on my way to go to school, um, my friends had sent more texts that there were gunshots, and everybody was running and crying out the school.
13: Uh, Outside from that sixth grader who was killed, absolutely devastating news as this community is mourning. Five other people were injured, four students, and the principal at Perry High School, all of the injured are expected to survive. Audie.
3: Veronica, thank you for bringing us the voices of those young people.
2: Well, this morning, there are new revelations from the latest batch of unsealed documents connected to the late sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Now, according to these documents, Epstein and Virginia Roberts-Duffray, alleged that former President Bill Clinton pressured Vanity Fair not to cover the allegations about Epstein. In one of unsealed email from 2011 to a reporter from the UK publication Mail on Sunday, Frey expressed her concerns about sharing the story with the publication, writing, quote, considering that B. Clinton walked into Vanity Fair and threatened them not to write sex trafficking articles about his good friend J.E.,
3: The documents do not actually specify when Clinton's interaction with Vanity Fair took place. Graydon Carter, Vanity Fair's editor from 1992 to 2017, said in a statement to CNN that the interaction, quote, categorically did not happen. Clinton has not been accused of any crimes or wrongdoing related to Epstein and has denied any criminal activity. A Clinton spokesman told CNN they had no new comment about the allegations. Thursday's release follows hundreds of pages of documents unsealed on Wednesday, with more expected in the coming weeks. Joining us now is investigative journalist Vicky Ward. She was one of the first reporters to investigate Epstein and spoke with him for many hours. She was contributing editor to Vanity Fair for 11 years. So first, this allegation, Graydon Carter just saying this did not happen. Can you give us some context here?
24: Sure, um, I never heard that that happened. What I wonder is if Virginia Roberts is hearing um, gossip and getting it um, getting it slightly wrong because what did happen um, back in two thousand and two when I was profiled to uh, write about Jeffrey Epstein actually profiled to write about his finances and remember this is a time when nobody knew who this guy was right. other than. He lived in the most expensive townhouse in Manhattan. Uh, I learned not of the horrific sex crimes going on that we now know about increasingly in more detail. I did hear about the story of two sisters, uh, Maria and Annie Farmer, um, and they were on the record detailing to me at the time the abuse they had suffered at the hands of Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. When Jeffrey Epstein realized that I was in possession of of their allegations, he appeared in the offices of Vanity Fair. I knew about this because the fact checker who was fact checking my piece at the time sent me an email saying, oh my God, he's standing here in the office. And, you know, I've, I've, Said before, you know, the the pharmacist's allegations were suddenly cut from the piece that was ultimately published. Um, I suspect, you know, I never met Virginia Geffray until 2019, long after these papers were filed. I never spoke to her. I didn't know of her existence. I wish that I had, because in fact, she was escaping from Jeffrey Epstein's clutches at the exact time that I was trying to deal with him and write this. profile. Uh, But I suspect that some version of the story I've just told you probably reached its way to her, and that might be what she's referring to. To be clear,
3: your story is that Epstein himself showed up in the office. You also have reported this very closely, and so have you noted some factual
24: errors that you've seen in some of the documents? Yeah, well, there's one about me. (laughs) I mean, just saying that, you know, it describes me. I'm on a witness list for Virginia, and so are Maria and Annie Farmer, and they say that we had knowledge of the the uh, sex trafficking by Maxwell and Epstein, including Virginia Roberts. I didn't know anything. I wish I had known about Virginia Roberts, and I wish I had known more about the farmers. Um, but there it is. When you
2: read through, when these, these types of things are released, these first two tranches, mm-hmm. whatever's coming next, does it fill in gaps for you? from your reporting or, or questions you just simply couldn't get answers to throughout the course of covering Jeffrey Epstein? And you see, has there any, been anything in here that you've said, oh wow, okay, that's, that explains
24: that. So what's really horrific and sickening to read that I obviously missed back in 2002 was what was going on in real time, the depravity what the in, we learned last night, Detective Joseph Ricari described as a pyramid scheme of young women recruiting their friends in dozens. I think he said there were more than 30 into that house in Palm Beach. And that was going on in real time as I was dealing with Jeffrey Epstein. And that is really a very frustrating and horrible thing to feel as the journalist who was assigned to him at uh, the time. I, you know, I was also assigned to look at how this man got his money and why all these powerful bold-faced names that we're reading about now were drawn to him. And, you know, I think that these papers don't really explain that. They, you know, Virginia Roberts does allege that she was Um, sent out to sleep with, you know, she says, Prince Andrew, and she names uh, other men. But the other women really, the depositions on the whole, talk about the fact that they were all bringing in each other to sleep with Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, which still leaves this question. Why were all these scientists? Why were, um, later on, you know, names we know, Bill Gates... Why were these academics? What were they? What What did Jeffrey Epstein have that um, attracted them all to him? We still don't really understand the answer to that question.
2: Yeah, and I think it underscores why people are so fascinated by the story because that is exactly, uh, that's exactly right. It's the main question. Vicki Ward, thank you. Thank we appreciate you. It.
24: Thank you.
3: Now, in her first interview with international media since being released from Hamas captivity, Daron Asher is opening up to CNN about her and her young daughter's journey home after being held hostage for 50 days.
2: Well, just this morning, it has been announced that 38-year-old Tamir Adar, who was abducted by Hamas on October 7th, has died. That's according to the Hostages and Missing Persons Families Forum in Israel. Adar is described as, quote, a dedicated family man and a father of two, ch- two young children who were his entire world. Adar's grandmother, Yaffa, who was seen being driven on a golf cart by her Hamas captors, was among the first group of hostages released in November.
3: And we're getting new insight on what life was like inside Hamas captivity. Duran Asher and her two young daughters were held hostage for 50 days. Now she's telling her story for the first time. CNN's Bianca Rodriguez has the story.
11: I don't have enough tears.
25: Nearly six weeks ago, Doron Asher and her two young daughters returned home after spending roughly 50 days held captive in Gaza.
22: I The first thing that they did was to go outside to feel the wind on their skin and how good it feels. Because we were never outside, we didn't see daylight that entire time.
25: Perhaps not yet fully able to process what happened, she exudes remarkable resilience.
22: While we were hostages, all of my energy was dedicated to the girls. Because if I were to get lost in grief, there would be no one to take care of them. So I was acting on autopilot. I was building walls around me. And I'm still on autopilot.
25: The three were visiting Doron's mother for the weekend at Kibbutz near Oz, where the girls love to play. That's five-year-old Roz in the pink dress on the right, while three-year-old Aviv holds on to her stuffed animal. This was their last photo taken before Hamas terrorists rampaged through the kibbutz, killing 48 residents, including their uncle Ravid.
22: We woke up to the sound of sirens, and we were inside the shelter. And then rumors started to come in that terrorists had invaded the kibbutz. They hid in the
25: safe room, along with Doron's mother and her partner, 79-year-old Gadi Moses, a man the girls called Saba. Saba grandfather in Hebrew.
22: He tries to speak with them in Arabic, to give them money, try to save himself. And then after a few minutes there was silence and we understood that they took him with them.
25: Eventually, another group of terrorists would arrive, this time taking all four women with them to Gaza. Only three would survive.
22: They have led us through the fence near the kibbutz and then they put us on a tractor with other Israeli hostages. And on the way there, there was shooting going on. That's how my mother was murdered. I was hurt in the back, and Aviv, my youngest, was hurt in the leg. Once you got into Gaza, what happened? We got into our hiding place, an apartment that belonged to a family. We were inside the room without the ability to get out, of course closed door, closed window, and after 16 days, they relocated us to another place, a so-called hospital.
25: Did anyone tell you what was going on? Why you were there?
22: Were they members of Hamas? They didn't give us a lot of information. They mainly tried to say that Hamas wants to release us, but in Israel, no one cares about us, which wasn't true. We didn't believe most of the stuff that they were saying.
25: What was going through your mind? When you were there kidnapped not knowing what would happen to you and your two babies there
22: with you the stuff that they've seen on october 7th i couldn't hide from them it's like we were in a war movie but after that it was very important to me that they wouldn't feel danger and i told them there are no terrorists anymore and we are good people who are guarding us until we can return home were they good to you The people they didn't physically harm me but there was a lot of psychological warfare like what that we won't return to live in the kibbutz because it's not our house it's not the place where we belong did you know if they were hamas or just citizens in gaza they didn't give me a lot of info about them i don't even know their names I guess that the father is with Hamas, but they didn't even give me much info. I just know he worked in Israel in the past, and that's how he knows Hebrew, and that's how we communicated. Why do you think they moved you after 16 days? I think they tried to gather hostages together because the day that we arrived to this so-called hospital, other hostages arrived there as well, and that was the first time that I met other hostages. Why do you keep saying so-called hospital? A hospital needs to treat sick people. It doesn't hold hostages. There were a few times when the girls had high fever and they were sick and I had to take care of them, and I needed to get them medication. So they brought someone who they said that was a doctor, and the next day I got medication from him for the girls, but it wasn't enough. I used to put Aviv in the sink with cold water to bring down her temperature, but she was screaming, and they would tell us to keep quiet, and the girl had high fever, but I had to take care of her somehow. Could you hear the IDF
25: bombing? Did did you know what was going on? And were you worried that by mistake that that, you and your girls would have been in danger as Israel was trying
22: to retrieve you? I heard the fighting, and yes, we were scared. The noises were very strong, very loud, but at least that's how we knew that something was going on in order to get us back home, to put the pressure on Hamas to release us. What
25: did you fear the most when you were
22: there? Surprisingly, it was the day that we were released. They were smuggling us out of the hospital, and they got us on a Hamas vehicle to get to a meeting point with the Red Cross. We waited a long time for the Red Cross, and we were very scared because we didn't know what was going on. No one gave us any info. Once the Red Cross vehicles had arrived, thousands of Gazans, thousands, children, elderly, everyone came in and started to climb on the cars and bang on the cars. I was holding my girls and I was scared of a lynch mob and this was the first time that Raz has said to me after a month and a half of me protecting her, mommy I'm scared. They absolutely put on a show to dress me up in nice clothes and shoes before I was released when my girls and I were barefoot for 50 days and we were cold because we were wearing short sleeves in November. It's one
25: big show. Today the girls are back in kindergarten and with family therapy for the most part are readjusting well.
22: There was one day that they saw a tractor here and they asked if the evil men are here and I had to tell them no, the tractor doesn't belong to the evil men, the evil men are in jail. And while they mourn their grandmother,
25: Duron says the healing can't really begin until all of the remaining 129 hostages are released, including Gadi. The
22: world Yes, absolutely. The world has to understand the reality that the hostages are in. They're not being treated as human beings. They don't give them medication. There's barely any food. Taking a shower is not something that's happening. We came back sick because of the poor hygiene. I don't want to think about how they're treating men there.
25: We should note that today, Phil and Adi, the younger of Doron's two daughters, Aviv, turns three years old. The family plans to hold a small party at home and perhaps a larger one for her at kindergarten.
2: That's a very important piece. Our thanks to Bianna for that reporting.
3: Now, Ron DeSantis took on Donald Trump last night in CNN's town hall. Next, we'll talk to one of his top surrogates about his Iowa strategy.
4: Donald Trump's not willing to show up on the debate stage. Has he come to communities and answered questions? Has he gone to all 99 counties? Heck, has he even gone to nine counties? that's not the way to do it.
11: More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
4: I think a 2024 election where the Democrats get to run against a candidate that is going through all this stuff, that is gonna give the Democrats an advantage. You don't want it to be a referendum on Trump and the past. You want it to be a referendum on Biden's failures, on our positive vision for this country. Donald Trump is running uh, for his issues. Nikki Haley's running for her donors' issues. I'm running for your issues. I'm running for your family's issues. And I'm running to turn this country around.
2: That was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ramping up his attacks on former President Trump. The CNN town hall last night in Iowa, less than two weeks before the caucuses. Joining me now is Bob Vanderplatz. He's a prominent evangelical leader in the state. He runs the Family Center. He's also endorsed Ron DeSantis. who was a huge get at the time for the DeSantis campaign. Uh, The governor of Iowa has also endorsed uh, Governor DeSantis. I appreciate your time. I want to start with, based on what we saw last night, you've, you've said you don't believe the polls that show that DeSantis is 30 or 40 points down. It doesn't correspond with what you're hearing on the ground. What have you heard about last night's performance?
26: He just keeps getting better and better. Matter of fact, I think he, he knocked it out of the park last night. I thought Caitlin Collins of CNN did a great job uh, with her questioning, as well as the audience members did. You had caucus members, a lot of them undecided yet, and that's what we're running into as well, a lot of undecided caucus voters. But I thought Governor DeSantos is very clear in his message. Everybody can see right away he's exceptionally prepared to be president. And his campaign, I think, is going gonna, is gonna to do very well Monday, January 15th. You, you told my colleague Aaron
2: Burnett last night, um, if his organization turns out on caucus night, he will defy and may shock the nation. Uh, we've heard a lot about his organization, the effort they put in on the ground, uh, the super PAC that supports them. But it was the if at the front of that statement that I was intrigued by. Why are you not certain the organization will well, turn out?
26: Well, you, you always don't know until you get to that night, January 15th. So you build a great organization. They've done everything they can Matter of fact, Phil, I thought the Cruz organization in 2016 was the best I've ever seen in the Iowa caucuses. I'm looking at the DeSantis organization. I think that's light years ahead of where Cruz was at in 2016. So if Governor DeSantis, which he's doing right now, closing the sale with Iowans, and his organization produces, I think, again, he could shock the country on January 15th. That's a that's a big comparison. Uh, the Cruz operation was, I think, widely
2: considered one of the best in the state maybe ever. Um, it was, it was the best I've ever seen. The, you endorsed Ted Cruz. You have a pretty great record of endorsing folks who end up winning uh, the caucus. Are you concerned that your kind of Oracle of Iowa run is going to come to an end?
26: Well, first of all, it's not about me. And I think it's what Governor DeSantis told the people last night. It's not about him either. Uh, it's about the people of Iowa. It's about the people of this country. I think what we do is we need, a, we need the next generation leader. I tell people all the time, I'm a friend of Donald Trump. This is not against Donald Trump, uh, but this is for the future of our country. And I think we need a leader who can lead on day one and who can lead for two terms. And I think America would be exceptionally blessed if we were to choose Governor DeSantis for that purpose. You, you've made the point, and you know this about anybody, this is an expectations
2: game kind of moment where everybody's talking about where does somebody need to finish in Iowa? Where does Nikki Haley need to be in New Hampshire to try and get the momentum You told the Washington Post in an interview, he either needs to come in first or he needs to be a close second in Iowa, somewhere within, I think you said 10 points. If he's outside of that, is his race over?
26: Well, I don't think so anymore because what it is is that now Trump is supposed to get 50 to 55%. There's nothing in my DNA that believes Trump is gonna get 50 to 55% on caucus night. They're saying DeSantis might get 16 to 18. I think he'll way outperform those numbers. And now you got Governor Sununu saying that Nikki Haley's going to take second in the state of Iowa. And there's no way I believe she's going to take second. I think you have one candidate that will defy the expectations and will outperform his numbers on caucus night. And I believe they'll give momentum going into New Hampshire and South Carolina and the other states. Just to step back uh,
2: before I let you go. Evangelical leaders, prominent evangelical leaders who have gone in a different direction of the former president have taken a lot of heat. So have members uh, of the of their churches, of their faith. Uh, what's the response been like since you decided to endorse Ron DeSantis?
26: Well, there's no doubt. I mean, the, the former president, uh, he's a New York street fighter. He knows how to play this game. And, but, but I take it as that. And so I don't take the, the attacks personal at all. Uh, and that's why I'm saying, you know, being a friend of Donald Trump isn't always telling him what he wants to hear. And I think right now it'd be best if our country turned the page our, our party turned the page as well, nominated a person that can really debate about this country's future versus the defense of somebody else. We don't want this, this uh, election to be about the past, we want this election to be about the future.
2: To that point, would you vote for him if he's the nominee?
26: Well, you know, it always comes down to choices. Right now I think the focus is, and I tell people all the time, the focus right now is the Iowa Coxes and this primary, the general election is way off and then when that comes to the point, you know, we get to discuss that issue as well. But right now, I think everybody sees there's a big difference between the Biden administration and the Trump administration. This country is much better off in the previous administration. A huge 10 days in the state
2: of Iowa for the DeSantis campaign as well. Bob Vander Plaats, thank you very much. Thank you,
26: Phil.
3: This just in to CNN, former Capitol Police officer Harry Dunn, who was on duty during the January 6th attack and later testified before the House January 6th committee is running for Congress. Dunn says former President Trump's role in the Capitol attack partly inspired him to run. He told CNN, quote, I want to do everything in my power that I can do to fight back against him. As a congressman, that gives me a seat at the table now to hold him accountable. Dunn will join a crowded field of Democrats vying for an open seat in Maryland's third congressional district. CNN This Morning continues right now.
2: Well, good morning. Today, President Biden opens his 2024 campaign year with a speech from historic Valley Forge. His message to voters about protecting democracy ahead of the third anniversary of the Capitol attack.
3: With Trump and Biden firmly leading their party, CNN is taking a fresh look at a potential presidential rematch in November. What the road to 270 electoral votes can tell us now, ahead of the big vote this fall.
2: And the final jobs report of 2023 will be released later this hour. We're gonna break down what the numbers suggest about the state of the economy as we kick off 2024. This hour of CNN this morning starts right now. Angry hey, Friday morning, everyone. It's the top of the hour. I'm Phil Mattingly.
3: And I'm Audie Cornish in New York. Poppy is off. Right now, Donald Trump is getting ready to blitz Iowa with two campaign rallies today as he tries to dominate the caucuses just 10 days from now.
2: His top rivals, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, racing to close the huge polling gap they face. They sharpen their attacks on the former president during dueling CNN town halls in Des Moines last night. Haley and DeSantis both making the case to Iowa voters that Republicans could lose in November if Trump is the nominee.
5: Americans don't want another nail biter of an election. And that's what we'll get. Look at any of the polls, head to head against Joe Biden, Trump, head to head with Biden. On a good day, he might be up by two. I defeat Biden by 17 points, 17 points.
4: The Democrats want Trump to be the candidate. They are going to talk about all the legal stuff, January 6th. That will be what the election will be about.
3: Today, we're also about to get our first split screen 2024 preview of a potential Biden-Trump rematch. Biden is set to give a speech marking three years since the January 6th attack and warn Americans that Trump is an existential threat to our democracy.
2: We start this morning with Kristen Holmes live in Sioux Center, Iowa. Kristen, what do we expect from Trump this weekend now back onto the campaign trail, balancing the election 10 days away, the caucuses and the ongoing legal issues?
14: Good morning, Phil and Adi. Well, let's start with what we expect to see this weekend because he has a lot of events. He has two today and two tomorrow. When you talk about closing message, he is actually making the point that Bob Vanderplatz just made. He's not really talking about his other GOP rivals. Of course, he's going to throw in those insults, but he wants to ask Iowans, and he's stressing to Iowans, are you happier now, particularly when it comes to the economy, than you were four years ago? Or were you better off four years ago? And if the answer is you were better off four four years ago, ignore all of this noise, Put me back in, I will win a general election and I'll do it for you again. Again, we're still gonna hear those side swipes at those other candidates, but that is the message that he really wants to hammer home. Now, as for whether or not he can balance all of the legal and all of the political, look just what we have seen in the month of January. And by the way, this is only going to get more full. The second, they filed their appeal in the main 14th Amendment case. The third of January, they filed their appeal in the Colorado 14th Amendment case. Fifth through six, he's in Iowa campaigning. The ninth, Trump's legal team is going to make their arguments in the immunity claim in D.C. I reported earlier this week that Trump's team is making plans for him to actually attend that. And the 11th, final arguments in the New York civil fraud case. We do not know yet if Trump is going to attend that, but we do know he has gone multiple times. And that is a case that is very close to him. After that, 12th. Through the Iowa caucuses, he's back in Iowa campaigning. This is a very hard schedule to juggle. And one thing to keep in mind here, none of the court appearances that he's made up to now, except for maybe one, I believe, was testimony in New York, were mandatory. These are choices he is making. So we haven't even gotten to the point where he is required to sit through some of those trials.
3: It's a good thing to underscore there, Kristen Holmes. Thank you. Well,
2: also today, President Biden will mark the third anniversary of the deadly January 6th Capitol riot with a speech at historic Valley Forge in Pennsylvania. Biden is expected to underscore the threat to democracy he sees posed by Donald Trump, which promises to be a central argument of Biden's 2024 re-election bid. Now, as part of that larger strategy, his campaign has released a new ad sharpening that message ahead of the GOP caucuses and primaries.
18: There's something dangerous happened in America. There's an extremist movement that does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy. All of us are being asked right now, what will we do to maintain our democracy? History's watching. The world is watching. Most important, our children and grandchildren will hold us responsible.
2: It is a big day that feels a little bit like a general election day to some degree. Joining us now, Scott Jennings, CNN political commentator and former special assistant to President George W. Bush. And David Axelrod, CNN senior political commentator and former senior advisor to President Obama. David, I want to start with you because uh, this is a big moment for Biden. It's Yes, it's the first rally of 2024. Yes, it's a half million dollar ad buy. But they're very clear about the importance of this message to their campaign and how they want to pursue it over the next 11 months.
27: Well, this has been a touchstone, of course, of Biden from his emergence in 2020 through the midterms of 2022 uh, to this moment. And I think that it comes at an important time for him because there are a lot of elements of the Democratic base that want to see him take a more active uh, stance. They want to see a contrast with Donald Trump. Uh, But there's also division in the Democratic base. And these issues are issues that unite the Democratic base uh, and Uh, and energize the Democratic base. I don't think this message alone is sufficient, but for this moment, uh, I think they think it's galvanizing. Um, You
3: mentioned divisions, and Scott, I want to ask you about one because a recent Washington Post poll shows that 77% of Democrats, compared to just... 18 percent of Republicans think the protests on that day were mostly violent. Um, And obviously, there's a lot of videos. uh, Obviously, there's been a lot of testimony um, and people have been charged with assault. Many of them have become martyrs to to some extent um, to certain people in the party. Why do you think that is?
12: Well, um, Republicans have come to believe a narrative about that day that just isn't the same as what independent voters believe and what Democrats believe, despite all the video evidence to the contrary. And that's why Biden is is going back to it. And they've been told this of course by Donald Trump and they have also been living with this feeling that every time Donald Trump is accused of something, they, they come around to believing that it's ultimately going to be debunked or has been debunked. Even and and so th- this has been added to that list. Mm-hmm. And that's also why he's been insulated, I think, to some degree from all of the criminal charges that he's facing in the different trials. There is a belief among his biggest supporters and, and a lot of Republicans that ultimately, ultimately, Trump is vindicated because we find out it was all a hoax to begin with. That that same rubric is being applied here to January the 6th.
3: And again, you there's know, no evidence whatsoever of that.
12: And, and so that but that's why you're asking me, why do you see this? chasm in, in public opinion polling, that's why.
27: Kristen Holmes uh, made an interesting point, which is Trump is going to court not because he's compelled to, but because he wants to. He's going there the day before the Iowa caucuses. He is going to sit there and listen to arguments about whether he had immunity or not uh, for his actions, and to some degree, you know, in the 19th century, we had these front porch campaigns. This is going to be a courthouse step campaign because it does energize his base uh, to uh, uh, this notion that he's being persecuted for his political uh, stances. And uh, and I, I know you believe that this is one of the motivations for Biden. Uh, yeah, Th- surfacing me, this issue today.
12: I think he's hitting this. I mean, obviously, it's the anniversary, but. It comes at the moment where Democrats want, I think, to help ensure that Donald Trump is the nominee of the Republican Party. I mean, this is the same strategy they used in the 22 midterm. They spent money and worked hard against more uh, moderate Republican candidates in primaries to ensure they got candidates, uh, the, the opponents they wanted. I think Biden wants and needs to run against Donald Trump. And so what they're doing today is going to make clear that he expects to run against Donald Trump and wants to run He's against also not him. Not that on, much of
3: a choice. I mean, obviously Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis well, would like to see differently, but sure.
12: But but the voting is about to start, and and as David just pointed out, uh, trying to uh, have Biden going after Trump on this issue, to your to the uh, to the opinion polling you just read, Republicans again will find it a, a way around to rallying around Trump at this moment.
2: Do you think that's true? I mean, I, I think you talk to Democrats, and if they look at the dynamics of Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis. Uh, Donald Trump, maybe not Ron DeSantis, but but I think they'd rather face Donald Trump than Nikki Haley. But the existential threat that is pointed out in advertisements and is pointed out in speeches, that's a pretty risky game to play if you just want Trump to be the nominee, if you think he's that dangerous.
27: Yeah, no, I think, look, I think for the common wheel, it's a risky game. but and I, and I don't know if, I mean, that's Scott's theory. It may or may not be true. But what is certainly true is that these indictments that people thought were going to be kryptonite have turned out to be battery packs for him in the Republican primaries. So uh, this issue has not hurt him among his base. We've also- base being the key. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Right, and not a message for independents. I think we also um, have a little sound of one of his attorneys kind of talking about Um, where she thinks this is going.
11: I think it should be a slam dunk in the Supreme Court. I have faith in them. You know, people like um, Kavanaugh, who the president fought for, who the president went through, held to get into place. He'll step up. Those people will step up, not because they're pro-Trump, but because because they're pro-law, because they're pro-fairness. And the law on this is very clear.
2: Scott just had some very
12: analysis. Yeah. Let me get real technical. Bad. <laughs> you, you can't go on TV as a lawyer defending somebody and say, well, Brett Kavanaugh, he's, he's going to vote for Trump because it's, uh, you know, he, he likes Donald Trump. Is that right? Terrible, wow. terrible idea. Should not have done that. I mean, I, I tend to agree with her analysis as a pundit that the Supreme Court is likely to side with Donald Trump. But when you go on, on TV, a legal basis or because he nominated them uh, on a legal basis, and I don't think the Supreme Court is going to want to be responsible for throwing a presidential candidate off the ballot in all 50 states. But yeah. when you go on TV and start to give political reasons why justices should vote for you or not, that, that, they shouldn't, that is a terrible idea.
27: Yeah. And, and by the way, there are going to be other issues that they're probably going to have to decide. Yes. And you certainly don't want to antagonize them. But I just have two words for her that she should contemplate. Lifetime appointment. Uh, they're, not, they're beyond the reach of Donald Trump. And not that they're not sensitive to politics, uh, but uh, I, I agree with Scott. I think, you know, not, not a wise strategy.
2: Scott, I'm going to be honest. I would have loved to have been in the room when your former boss, the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, heard those comments. <laughs> that would have been an interesting response. David Axe right, Scott Jennings. Thanks, guys. We appreciate it.
3: We've also got new details on the deadly school shooting in Iowa, what the gunman reportedly posted on TikTok right before the shooting.
2: And at this moment, it sure looks like we're headed for a Trump-Biden rematch at the end of this year. David Chalian is gonna join us to break down each candidate's early potential, possible path to 270 electoral votes. Stay with us.
11: More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. We are 10 days
2: away from the Iowa caucus. And if you don't believe me, we have a clock and 10 months from the general election. CNN is taking an early look at this moment at a potential Biden versus Trump rematch in the electoral math. Each would need to capture the coveted necessary 270 electoral votes to win the White House. Joining us now is CNN political director David Chai. And and David, you and I both know all of the uh, caveats apply here. It is very early. There is still a Republican primary. We don't know how any number of things are going to shake out. However, when you look at kind of pathways here, where do things stand?
28: And just to also be clear, Phil, we're just taking a look at a snapshot of where things stand today. At the beginning of 2024, this isn't predictive or looking forward to where we'll end up. Just to remind people where we left off in the road to 270 in 2020 with Joe Biden's victory at 306 electoral votes to Donald Trump's 232 electoral votes. If you look at the breakdown of states in our electoral college outlook today, what you see here is... Donald Trump with 272 electoral votes based on the states that are either solidly in his corner or leaning in his direction. Uh, Joe Biden down to 225 uh, electoral votes with the blue states that are either deep blue, solidly in his direction, or the light blue uh, leaning his way. And you've got these yellow states that are true toss-ups in this race right now, Phil. Again, I think it shows three things. One, this is gonna be an extraordinarily close presidential race again. Joe Biden is struggling at this start of the year to recreate his victorious uh, coalition on the electoral map uh, from 2020. And that Donald Trump is indeed, uh, as a potential Republican nominee, uh, very much in the hunt for a return to the White House.
2: Extraordinarily close going to come down to seven, six, seven states, almost no matter what. Trump can definitely win. What changes this current
28: snapshot? Yeah, I mean, listen. Right now, we have states here that obviously Joe Biden won that currently are leaning in Donald Trump's direction. So imagine, uh, if you will, here Michigan. We have rated as leaning Republican at the moment. This is based on polling and reporting and conversations with people in the state. But if that reverts back to its normal sort of toss-up status, you immediately see that Donald Trump uh, goes down below the 270s at two. 57. Imagine if the same thing were to happen with Georgia, which Biden won last time, and Nevada, again, a state we have leaning to Trump right now, but that Biden won last time. And you see it's 225 to 235. And you see where the battleground is going to be here, Phil. So uh, it is not impossible to imagine that Joe Biden will have some of these states that he won last time come back into more competitive territory. At the moment, though, he's got to win everything we have rated as a toss-up, and actually claw back at least one of those states that's leaning in Trump's direction that he won in 2020.
2: Yeah, it is a bumpy path ahead, but one that does exist. David Chalian,
28: thank you. Thanks, Bill.
3: Joining us now is former governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan. He's also national co-chair of the centrist group No Labels, which is actively considering running a third-party candidate for president. Welcome to the program. I want to start. Good morning. I want to start by mentioning that you ruled out a presidential run yourself back in March. You said you didn't want to be part of, quote, a multi-car pileup. So here we are just a few days out (laughs) from Iowa. Who should drop out?
29: Well, you know, I think that's for those candidates to decide. And I think it depends on what happens here in Iowa, frankly. So uh, I thought, first of all, last night, the town hall, both. Both the candidates did better than I'd seen them perform before. CNN did a good job putting on the town halls. It was a good format. I thought that uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, f- for the first time I'd seen in the whole campaign actually, was connecting with voters and seemed to be uh, you know, more human and more real. Uh, Nikki Haley was really on top of her game and uh, especially strong on foreign policy. But look, they're, they're both fighting for distant second place in Iowa, and it's neck and neck. That's going to determine, I think, what happens uh, before and after New Hampshire, because if, if, he, if DeSantis comes out with a strong win, uh, he may move into uh, New Hampshire and start to make some progress. But if he loses, it's mm-hmm. pretty much over for him. He's in fourth place currently in New Hampshire behind Chris Christie. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think we'll, we'll know a lot more in the next week or two. And uh, at this point, I don't think anything's going to happen or anyone's going to get out. But so perhaps then- after Iowa, you might see in between those two primaries, you might see some action.
3: What is No Labels looking for in terms of when it's going to decide whether or not to mount a challenge? Like, what are what's the thing that would draw you in?
29: Yeah, well, um, I'm not sure it would draw me in or would draw them in. It's I'm, I'm a former honorary chairman of, uh, of of No Labels, but I'm really focused on trying to see if we can't find a Republican uh, to win the nomination. That's not Donald Trump, because I think he gives my party the the worst uh, opportunity to win even though we just you just saw the poll numbers and he's ahead of Biden yeah, as Nikki Haley pointed out last night she's 17 points ahead of Biden and Trump is pretty much neck and neck and DeSantis is losing so I thought that was a strong argument but no labels is saying look if we, probably after we see all of this mess in the train car wreck and uh, next couple of months they have until March or so when you get past Super Tuesday and if everybody in the country realizes that we're stuck with two very unappealing candidates that 70% of the country doesn't want, then there's a chance that they might uh, try to put together a unity ticket uh, to have the courage to put the country first and put together a Republican and a Democratic, uh, uh, you know, top tier candidate or ticket that could compete.
3: We've been talking a lot today about the fact that the former president is choosing to attend next week's federal appeals court uh, arguments uh, in his case where he's talking about presidential immunity. So he'll be in a courtroom just before the Iowa caucuses. I want to play for you um, some of the conversation last night from Ron DeSantis on this.
4: Whatever may be beneficial in the primary doesn't mean it's beneficial in the general election. And I think a 2024 election where the Democrats get to run against a candidate that is going through all this stuff, that is going to give the Democrats an advantage where we're putting the future of the Republican Party and the future of the nation, perhaps, in the hands of 12 jurors in heavily Democrat D.C.
3: It's pretty clear that the Trump campaign feels like it's to their benefit to some extent, that they people rally around the former president. How are you thinking about this?
29: Well, it's a strange situation in that where it's two different sets of people that are watching this and who are making up their minds. And strangely, I can't quite explain it myself, but a pretty solid percentage of the base Republican primary votes actually likes all this attentions and sees it as unfair, overzealous prosecution and weaponization of the Justice Department. And that's actually, instead of bringing Trump down, it's raising him up. But I would agree with Ron DeSantis in that this is not helping with swing voters. And it's no way, you know, every election is determined by the folks in the middle, not the right wing or the, or the left base of the Democratic Party. And those folks, it's how are they going to look at uh, some of these cases, it's like court TV in between every primary he's in court somewhere in the country defending himself on one of the 93, you know, uh, charges against him.
3: To that end, uh, Joe Biden is definitely reminding people of what he considers the threat. The campaign has released their first ad of 2024 and it doesn't focus necessarily on the economy, et cetera. It focuses on the threat to democracy uh, that he says is posed by a second Trump term. Here's that.
18: There's something dangerous happening in America. There's an extremist movement that does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy. All of us are being asked right now, what will we do to maintain our democracy? History's watching. The world is watching. Most important, our children and grandchildren will hold us responsible.
3: Back in 2020, Joe Biden sort of used Charlottesville in a similar manner. And you earlier talked about the base. But what about independent voters, swing voters? Do you think this message still resonates these years later?
29: I I think it will. I think it has the opposite impact with Republican primary voters because they're just not listening to that message. But I think it does. This is a message I think that could be a winning message. I think it's smart for the Biden campaign to focus on that. Look, you know, on January 6th, look, I was, I was the next door governor getting the desperate calls from the leaders of Congress to come, you know, save the Capitol from the insurrection and <clears throat> send in the Maryland National Guard and the Maryland State Police, first ones to arrive. And I said something very similar to that the day after January 6th. So um, I, I think that there are plenty of people in the middle, but it's a Republican, uh, a Democrat, and Independent, who do believe this was a, a an assault on our democracy, one of the worst days in American history, and I think reminding people uh, of what that was like. Uh, but we're not—you're not, not going to swing to Trump voters. They—they they just uh, are not. They, I don't know how it happens, but they just believe it was, uh, you know, friendly tourists at the Capitol, and nothing bad happened, and uh, Trump didn't incite the riot. Uh, Uh, But I think when you get to the general election, it has complete opposite uh, effect in a primary. It it pumps them up in a general election. I think that's going to be a very winning message.
3: Larry Hogan, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. And next Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern, Jake Tapper and Dana Bash moderate CNN's Republican presidential debate. That's going to be live from Iowa.
2: Well, this morning Secretary of State Antony Blinken heads to the Middle East again as multiple flashpoints threaten to erupt into a regional war. Israel reveals its next phase of the war against Hamas in Gaza.
3: And a new study estimating that 300,000 lives could be saved from gun violence if every state followed the lead of two states. We'll tell you which ones next.
2: Well, just hours from now, Secretary of State Antony Blinken will arrive in the Middle East to begin his fourth trip to the region since the October 7th Hamas attacks in Israel. His visit comes as fears are rising that the Israel-Hamas war could erupt into a much broader conflict after a suspected Israeli attack on a senior Hamas leader in Beirut, twin ISIS explosions near the gravesite of an Iranian commander, and Iran-backed Houthi attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. Also, a drone attack on a pro-Iranian Iraqi uh, militants in Baghdad, which the U.S. says it was behind as it blames the group for its recent attacks on American troops. At the same time, Israel is unveiling its plans for the next phase of its war in Gaza, including a new combat approach in the north and sustained focus on targeting Hamas leaders in the south. Seeing as Oren Lieberman joins us now from the Pentagon. Uh, Oren, there is a lot to unpack here. What's on the Secretary of State's plate? How is he going to handle this in the days ahead?
30: Well, Phil, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's goal here, at least part of his goal, is to find some way forward here without escalating tensions in the region, or at least trying to contain potential conflicts that could very easily grow into open war. And look here at the challenge he has ahead of him, and this is just in the last week. As you pointed out on Thursday, so yesterday, the U.S. took a strike in Baghdad that killed the commander of a pro-Iran militia. Those strikes have angered the Iraqi government in the past. They've called it an infringement of Iraqi sovereignty. Just a day 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 before that there was a major ISIS terror attack in Iran, Iran blaming Israel at least in part for that, saying they'll respond. A day before that, an Israeli strike in Beirut in Lebanon killed a senior Hamas leader there, both Israeli and Lebanese officials warning there could be open war if there isn't some sort of arrangement found on that border. And then two days before that, U.S. Navy helicopters sank three Houthi boats that fired on the U.S. military and were approaching a a commercial vessel in international shipping lanes. All of these are essentially across the Middle East. The U.S. sees Iran as largely responsible here for the attacks on U.S. forces and on international shipping lanes. But the U.S. is trying to find a way forward, grappling with how to respond to these without sparking a wider conflict, and that is part of Blinken's challenge here as he meets with the Saudis, the Qataris, the Egyptians, and more, as well as, of course, the Israelis and the Palestinians, because that war is very close to the three-month mark here, Phil.
2: Yeah, an enormously consequential trip, as they all have been over the course of the last several months. Orrin Lieberman, live from the Pentagon, thank you.
3: This morning, the community reeling in Perry, Iowa, after the deadly high school shooting Thursday that killed a sixth grader and wounded five others, including the principal. Schools in the area are now shut down. Police say the 17-year-old shooter Dylan Butler died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. ABC News reports his friends say he was bullied.
14: He got tired. He got tired of the bullying. He got tired of the harassment. We tried to be there when he needed us, us, which clearly we weren't there for him enough.
3: Now, first on CNN, a new study on gun violence reports nearly 300,000 lives could potentially be saved over the next decade if every state enacted stronger gun control laws like in New York and California. CNN's Omar Jimenez joins us now. So tell us a little bit more about this report.
31: Yeah, so this study from Everytown's, the Gun Violence Prevention Nonprofit, essentially looked at the state gun death rates from the CDC and compared them with the strength of the gun policies and laws for each of these states and essentially created a score or a ranking. So when you look at some of those top states, California, New York, Illinois, for example, again, a composite of gun death rates and gun law strength. And at least for California and New York, they had some of the lowest gun death rates in the country, which includes homicides, suicides and accidental killings, which is interesting because they have the two largest cities in the country as well. On the other end of the spectrum, Arkansas was ranked last because of their weaker gun laws and high gun death rate there. Now, when it comes to the laws they studied, every town essentially looked at five foundational So that's requiring background checks, that's securing secure firearm storage, that's rejection of stand-your-ground laws, extreme risk laws that could take away someone's access to firearms if they're deemed to be a threat to themselves or others. There are other metrics, but those are sort of the foundational ones. And based on the implementation of those, they claim that nearly 300,000 lives could be saved over the next decade if every state followed the example of some of those top-ranked states like California and New York.
2: I mean, uh
31: Again, too much experience in Washington, here, in California, and New York,
2: and try and tell states that don't have their gun laws that's what you should be like, and you're going to anger a
31: lot of people. What, what do they want this report to spark, if anything? Well, one of the f- distinctions they drew is that a lot of people look to the U.S. Congress for action when it comes to gun violence and gun bills, but there's a lot of action happening at the state level. So, Michigan, for example, Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed. A number of gun violence prevention bills, including requiring background checks for all gun sales, secure firearm storage, keeping guns out of the hands of convicted domestic abusers. Their score on this ranking went up as a result. Meanwhile, states like Florida and Nebraska essentially said you don't have to have a permit to open carry in public anymore. Their rankings went down by every town's standards. But the key thing to look for here is because those just passed in 2023 is How are those passages going to affect the gun death rates in many of these states? And this study affirms sort of the first version of it, which is that they believe the weaker gun laws are directly correlated with higher deaths, uh, gun death rates. Omar Jimenez, thanks. Yeah, of course.
3: This just in, the final jobs report of 2023. We'll break down the numbers and the state of the economy as we kick off the new year.
2: And it's been nearly 15 years since Captain Sully pulled off one of the greatest emergency landings in the history, uh, in history with the miracle on the Hudson. Up next, we're going to speak to, with someone who recounts what it was like to be on that plane. Stay with us.
3: This just in, the final jobs report of 2023, showing the economy added 216,000 jobs. We're going to bring in CNN anchor and business correspondent Rahel Solomon. Welcome back. Good morning. All right. So first, help us understand the connection between the jobs numbers and everything else. (laughs) <laughs> How should we think about yeah, it? Yeah,
9: I mean they're super important, right? They tell us. I mean, you think about the consumer being the backbone of the U.S. But they economy. Been automatic good news, right? Like- no, they're not. And I can tell you that the futures, last I checked, were actually down on this news. So let's put this in perspective. So two hundred and sixteen thousand for the month of December. That is hotter than we were expecting. I don't know if you guys are feeling a little warm right now, but this was a hotter than expected report. (laughs) The expectation was closer to about 160,000. Unemployment rate sort of remained at 3.7%. And we can show you the unemployment rate over the last few years or so. And guys, we've been in this really tight range, as you can see. So that spike was, of course, the pandemic. And then you see that we've been sort of below 4% for almost two years. I mean, we've been at or below 4% for unemployment, which, which is very low since January of 2022. If you look at the sectors where we added jobs, you can see there are uh, some of the sectors that we expected, healthcare, government construction, a government adding 52,000 jobs, healthcare 38,000 jobs in construction. Wages, which of course have inflationary impacts and implications. Wages increase as expected 0.4% on an annual basis. So what this means broadly is it's, it's still a hot labor market. It is still a strong labor market. But when you step out and look at the broader picture, you do start to see some cooling on the fringes. So you look at job postings, for example. Those have started to fall. We haven't seen layoffs like some had been expecting, but we're seeing job postings start to fall. So it may not be as easy to find another job, but by and large, we're still looking at a pretty robust labor market.
2: So, I mean, I thought we'd secured mission accomplished on the soft landing. Goldilocks, we we'd, we'd nailed that one down. You mentioned that there are peripheral elements, too, that are being considered. How's the Fed looking at this, given what yeah. j Powell said just last month?
9: No, it's a great question. So a, a hotter-than-expected report sort of increases the likelihood that when we do see rate cuts, it's going to be later in 2024, right? So we have, well, I want to say, seven or eight Fed meetings next year. And so the hope had been, well, maybe if this was a cooler job report, we would start to see rate cuts Maybe in March, maybe in April, this is starting to look like we may start to see them actually uh, later in the spring, earlier in the summer. So those are the implications because it's still a strong labor market. It's still a strong economy because you have to remember the labor market powers consumer spending, right? Consumer spending is two thirds of the U.S. economy. So if people are employed, people are having their wages go up they can spend, but that, of course, has an inflationary impact.
3: Consumer spending is meaningful in terms of how people feel about the economy. Help us with the disconnect. Why do these big numbers not kind of translate to people at home?
9: One word, inflation, right? I mean, you are still seeing, even though we're seeing inflation, the price uh, rises cool, they're so higher. Prices, by and large, are so higher than they were a few years ago. People, of course, know that. Even in the last CPI report, Consumer Price Index report, you still saw prices for categories like shelter, uh, rent, for example, the, the cost to put a roof over your head, that still continues to go up. That's going to take some time. Food prices, grocery prices, those are still going up. And so even though most people, by and large, at least according to the data, are meaningfully employed, you still have to go to the grocery store and eat, and it's more expensive. You still have to put a roof over your head, and it's still expensive. On the bright side, though, gas price is about $3 a gallon right now on average. That's lower than it was a month ago. That's lower than it was a year ago. And so that's helping. But I think until inflation is really in the rear view, until people don't feel like, gosh, it's so expensive to buy most things, it's still going to be that disconnect. All
3: right, Raul, thank you. Thanks, man. Now, this month will mark 15 years since Captain Chelsea Sullenberger executed one of the most famous emergency landings in modern aviation history. You'll remember he landed U.S. Airways Flight 1549 in the middle of the Hudson River after it struck a flock of birds and lost all engine power. All 155 people on the board survived in what the FAA called the most successful ditching in aviation history.
2: Now This Sunday on The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper, we'll look back on the harrowing details of that fateful day and in exclusive interviews with the crew and passengers, we'll look at how their lives were changed forever. Here's a preview.
7: About 10 years before, I'd been on a really, really turbulent flight. And when I was on that flight, there was a pilot who was a passenger. He leaned over to me and he said, Ma'am, do not worry about turbulence. He said, all we worry about in the cockpit are birds and fire.
18: The birds had been just completely consumed by the engines.
6: And that burning uh, smell came into the airplane. For whatever stupid reason, I took off my seatbelt and I went over and I looked
17: out the window. The engine's still there, but it's not running.
15: What was most frightening to me was the silence. There was no engine noise.
30: We could feel our blood pressure shoot up our pulse spike. Our perceptual field narrow in tunnel vision because of the stress. I knew without a shadow of a doubt that life was over. I honestly
17: thought that I was going to die. I thought this was it.
2: Joining us now is one of the passengers from flight 1549, Pam Siegel. Pam, one, thank you for joining us. Two, uh, I was striking when we were kind of going through research before this segment. I'm very, can't wait to watch it. Um, this flight was part of your work routine. You said, though, that on that day, something felt off.
15: Yeah, it was so uh, you have to remember, this was the height of the financial crisis. I worked for Bank of America. We were merging with what was then Merrill Lynch. And you flew up every Sunday or Monday. You came up to New York from Charlotte. You worked three or four days, and then you went back. So this was routine. This was something that I was doing every day for the past three or four months. But on that Sunday night prior uh, to this flight, I had a dream, and in this dream, I'm standing. I'm on a, a bank of water. I don't know if it's a river or it's a lake. But I'm standing on the water, and I watch a plane go down. And it was frightening. And it woke me up. Um, and I told my husband about it. And I said, I don't, I don't know if I can get on that flight tomorrow morning. That Monday morning, got to Charlotte Airport, and this is it. You still had paper tickets, you know. You didn't have your old digital. I walked to the gate, and I got there, and I handed and I pulled it back. I couldn't do. I, I was just too frightened to actually get on that flight. So I went back home um, and I was convinced that I was going to turn on the news, probably CNN, and and watch that this plane had gone down and it didn't. So Tuesday morning, yeah, I felt a little bit foolish, but got back, resumed my travel schedule, flew back up to New York on that Tuesday. And so everything seemed fine. Other than that was still kind of lingering, this this feeling. Um, And then the other thing that was a little odd and off that day was that Everyone knew that flight, so when you did that, that routine, it was the same thing all the time. You went to the same gate, you kind of sat in the same space, you ate at the same restaurant, and they moved the gate. And I know gates get moved all the time, but for those of us where it was very routine, that was off, that was odd. We had a delay and they moved us to a gate. So I was feeling uneasy when I got on. I'm not a comfortable flyer anyway, so feeling just a little bit more off that day.
3: It must be strange to relive this, right? To have this conversation and describe it all over again. How have those experiences changed you?
15: So there's, you know, there was the small impacts in the early days. There was the um, having to be more educated about flying, having to understand the aircraft, paying attention to where I was. But then there's the more significant impacts. And those came over time. And. One of the most important things, as I mentioned, that you know, I was there and I was working for Bank of America. At the time, they came to us. So I was on a work trip and said, what do you need? Do you need mental health? Do you want to continue flying back and forth to New York? Do you want to do something different with your life? And it was that intervention that helped me say, you know what? I'm not enjoying my job. I but were you feeling
3: the stress? Was it ha- like happening in real time? Was it affecting your mental health?
15: Yeah. I mean, it was, you couldn't sleep. Um, it was difficult. You had, I had to form a narrative in my head. I had to come up with what happened. Part of it I remembered, part of it was filled in. So people would say, no, you said this, or you, you went there. And then suddenly you become, and that becomes your story. But it, it was surreal in the early days. It was almost as if it, it didn't feel like it had actually happened. So I had to create and, and tell myself what had happened. I did not get, you know, any any mental health counseling at the time. I, I dealt with it. I learned breathing techniques, um, and I had to take some control. I had to to learn to do that. Um, but when this job opportunity presented, um, and now, you know, I'm, I traveled the world, and I was given this opportunity to help women, and I run global women's programs for Bank of America, and I traveled, and so I had to go to Haiti and India and Japan and Singapore and Brazil and all of these places required getting on a flight. I had to get over that fear. In the early days, I couldn't even touch the mouse when I was making the reservation. I would sweat and I would, it was really, really difficult. But now, you know, I've learned to do it. Now I can get on there. And I had to create a new normal that planes don't fall out of the sky and they take off and land. So that's my new normal.
2: It's a good new normal at that. Uh, An unbelievable story at the time, both for you personally, but also for everybody on that plane. Um, thanks so much for coming in. We cannot wait to watch. You have to be sure Thank to you. tune in in an all new episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. One whole hour, one whole story airs Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific only on CNN.
3: And right now, a storm is forming in the Gulf of Mexico, and it's expected to bring severe storms to the south and snow up north. Around 20 million people under winter storm alerts. And there's also a flood threat across the South today and severe storm threat for the Gulf Coast.
2: Well, tomorrow marks three years since the attack on the U.S. Capitol. But today, some Americans believe January 6th may have been an inside job. That's a lie. We're going to break down the reality of what happened on that fateful day in Washington next. Tomorrow will mark three years since thousands of Americans lied to by the President of the United States and their elected representatives perpetrated an assault on the building that's come to symbolize democracy across the globe and the men and women who work on its grounds. That's not an opinion. It's not an interpretation. It's not one side of a debate. It is an unequivocal, demonstrable fact. Here's some others. Nearly 700 January 6th defendants have pleaded guilty to federal crimes ranging from trespassing to violent assaults on police. Another 130 have been convicted at trial. 140 officers guarding the Capitol that day reported physical injury. The actual number with physical injuries or grappling with trauma is far higher, according to the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia.
17: The siege of the Capitol is likely the largest single-day mass assault of law enforcement officers in our nation's history. These are facts, unequivocal,
2: demonstrable. Which is why this Associated Press headline was so jarring this week. One attack, two interpretations, Biden and Trump both make the January 6th riot a political rallying cry. There aren't, in fact, two interpretations here. There's what happened, and then there are lies. But the point of the actual AP story itself should be jarring, because it helps explain the Washington Post-University of Maryland polling this week that laid bare the reality of this moment for this nation about that day. More than 7 in 10 Republicans say too much is being made of the attack and that it's, quote, time to move on. Fewer than 2 in 10 say that January 6th protesters were, quote, mostly violent. 34% of Republicans say it's probably or definitely true the FBI instigated the attack. For one, there's zero violence or zero evidence of that last one, despite its rampant prevalence in conservative conspiracy circles. Circles that include Republican members of Congress. Here's the FBI director last fall.
29: If you are asking whether the violence at the Capitol on January 6 was part of some operation orchestrated by FBI sources and or agents, the answer is emphatically You're
26: saying not. no.
2: But here's the thing more broadly. Viewing that day through the lens of a campaign or politics at all is exactly why the country's in this place. Republicans have made a political calculation, one tied directly to their 2024 frontrunner's grip on the party. So let's try this. Put aside... Campaigns put indictments aside too. How put the former president aside for a moment. Here are Republicans in their own words on or shortly after that day.
21: I am sheltered in place in my office because we have protesters who have stormed the Capitol. This is Banana Republic crap that we're watching happen right now.
2: That was Congressman Mike Gallagher, a Wisconsin Republican. He's not a rabid pro-Trump MAGA lawmaker. He has said he won't support Trump in 2024 on account of his age. But that, what he described, is the reality of that day.
6: These men and women in the uniform, they got overrun. One officer got killed. I went down and said, they got broken arms. You don't understand what was transpiring at that
29: moment in that time. They scaled walls. They brought ropes. They were scaling the scaffolding. They, They overtook the place. That was
2: Kevin McCarthy
29: a week after
2: the attack. He's currently unemployed, but he was once the House Speaker and did more than any other Republican to halt the party's break from Trump after January 6. McCarthy endorsed Trump last month, but what he described was the reality of that day.
30: The criminals who did it ought to be prosecuted as they are being and ought to be given the the full measure of the law. You're not going to get anything but condemnation from me for what happened with those criminals at the Capitol on January 6th.
2: That was Senator Josh Hawley a month after the attack as the Senate weighed impeachment of the former president. Hawley endorsed Trump last month. But what he described was the reality of that day. Mark, I was just told there's an active shooter on the first floor of the Capitol. Please tell the president to calm people. This isn't the way to solve anything. That was a text from a lawmaker to Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, as the attack was taking place. That lawmaker was Marjorie Taylor Greene. She endorsed Trump the day he launched his 2024 campaign. What she described was the reality of that day. And here's Senator Ted Cruz the day before the first anniversary of the attack.
6: We are approaching a solemn anniversary this week. Uh, And it is an anniversary of a violent terrorist attack on the Capitol where we saw the men and women of law enforcement demonstrate incredible courage.
2: That was the reality of that day. It was unequivocal. It was demonstrable. It is now political. Think that's an exaggeration? Remember those Cruz comments we literally just played for you? This is Ted Cruz the very next night.
1: You called this a terror attack when by no
6: definition was it a terror attack. That's a lie. You told that lie on purpose, and I'm wondering why you did. Well, Tucker, thank you for having me on. When you aired your episode last night, I I sent you a text shortly thereafter and said, listen, I'd like to go on because uh, the way I phrased things yesterday, it it was sloppy and, and it was frankly dumb.
2: The key point, they know better. They all know better.
3: Well, thanks for showing that tape. It's important.
2: Everybody, have a great weekend. Thanks for hanging out this week. Thank Always you for having me. CNN News Central starts right now.
11: That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.